welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Ikulu and Proven Wrong off their debut LP, Unscrew My Head. Now, this Long Island band has been kicking around for a little bit, and I think release by release have just been improving their sound. But I'm going to tell you, just from the age group of my friends and my older friends, it's always interesting to see young bands get that kind of immediately response and excitement out of some of these old dogs that don't like listening to anything new. Absolutely outstanding crossover thrash in the vein of the Cro-Mags and all the shit that you would think of when you think of true classic hardcore mix with the ultimate 80s thrash sound. I mean, if you ever wanted to hear a band that just brought you back to the Best Wishes era with JJ singing, that's what it's getting compared to, and it's absolutely fucking outstanding. Uh, this is out now. It's been out for about a week now. If you want a physical copy or merch, check out cashonlyrecords.limitrun.com. We're going to have this linked up. Check these fucking guys out. Thanks for letting us play this song. I know it's a week late from the debut. Absolutely outstanding fucking music and can't wait to see more from these guys. Going into this week, there is obviously going to be shows. And I think as the podcast grows... We're going to talk about shows right after we do our intro. First off, Madball, A Week Away, Reverb, Reading, Pennsylvania, Small Room, Madball, Dead Before Dishonor, Cruel Hand, Hangman, MH Chaos, First East Coast Show, and Our Boys Hesitate. I've said it before, don't sleep on the tickets. I don't even know how many are left, but it's very fucking few. And I really would hate to see people getting turned away the door, so be prudent. Buy your ticket in advance. July 3rd, Saturday, at Underground Arts in Philadelphia, their record release for Year of the Knife, Internal Incarceration, with Mind Force, Queensway, All Due Respect, Age of Apocalypse, and Raw Life. All ages, go check it out. It's going to be a hot night. So we're in the AC, back in the black box. Thank God Rich Stouffer and the crew at Underground Arts got us up and running for this one. And we may have a DJ and party into midnight, which then your boy Joe Harcourt is going to be 41 years old. We might be partying late or just eating some cheesesteaks outside. Who the fuck knows? Show up, rock out for the Year of the Knife record release party. Bob Wilson, the motherfucking Philadelphia Barbecue 2.5. Talked about this, spoke about it many times, and just had to reiterate that this is one of the few times in hardcore in Philadelphia where I think we can kind of pull so many bands together without a fucking war. And it's because of one man, Bob Wilson. The rules are simple. The show is at Sellersville, Pennsylvania. Not quite Allentown. Not quite Lansdowne. Just a little bit outside of Philadelphia. The first band will be paid back. You pay $2. You show up after they fucking play, you're paying 10 bucks. So be there promptly on time. Carried by Six, Chemical Fix, Fixation, Gridiron, Hesitate, Jesus Peace, Killing Me, Life's Question, Not One Truth, Jesus Peace, Off the Tracks, One Step Closer, Payback, Reign of Salvation, Raw Brigade, Raw Life, Shackles, Simulacra, Spirit Flaw, and Struck Nerve. July 10th. Absolutely outstanding work to get so many bands to play one show just for the sake of Philadelphia Hardcore. And all the money goes to the Philly Bully Team. And 
They're absolutely doing great things to rescue dogs, so support in that way as well. Going over the list of announced shows now, so far this week we have announced not one but two shows with Knock Loose at the First Unitarian Church. They're playing that ridiculous throwback insane show, Furnace Fest, down south, and they're making their way with Gate Creeper, insane awesome band. First time they'll be playing a Philly hardcore show, but they've been through the city. They're rippers. Our friends in Magnitude. <laughs> Growing steady. Kids love them. Really like the one young band that put all the elements of the throwback straight edge with their own touch. And they just keep growing. And Karma from the Midwest. Check them all out. Saturday, September 11th, and Sunday, September 12th. Back-to-back, whole weekend of absolute First Unitarian Church fucking chaos. We're back at the church. I'm so fucking excited. And obviously, we're on sale. Get your tickets. We're hoping they both sell out. That's why we booked two of them. And we can't fucking wait. And I hope that you understand the support that we get for these shows. It's what's going to carry us over. I know there's a shit ton of things going on. There's a shit ton of shows getting announced. I mean, I'm working on shows September, October, November. So is Bob. Shit, we got holds and shit for March, April. Big shout out to FYA, Bob's Festival. The party of the fucking year. The way to start off the show right down in Florida. Me and Austin Power, I mean, Austin Powers, me and Austin Sparkman are going to be at the goth night every fucking night of the week, wowing out. I heard Mike Hooligan and the boys are going to come down. It's going to be a wild one, January 7th through 9th. I'm so excited for shows. I don't want to derail this podcast any further. Once again, more stuff coming to Patreon. Check it out, patreon.com slash hardcore. When I talk about Bill Wilson, it's a weird thing because... There are so many different labels, and, and each label individually has left its mark in hardcore. But whether you are just a Breakdown fan, or you love the Iceman, or just some of the stuff that came out in the 90s, Bill Wilson is just one of these figures that, regardless of what other people were doing, had his own group of friends, and put out the Where the Wild Things are comp, which is like, to this day, one of the the most significant pieces of compilation and bringing all these bands together. And we go really into the why and the how, but it's not just what it is, man. I mean, having known people who know him well, and as I started thinking about doing a podcast, initially we were gearing it towards mostly people who were on the industry side and you hear the back behind the door stuff. And his name immediately came to mind just because there was so much to him that goes beyond Blackout and into the world of music that went beyond and auxiliary to it and ran concurrently with it. But what ended up happening is the show starts and he begins and I'm amazed and blown away. Not by his intellect and his ability just to carry a story, but just how he progresses as a human being. And I few guests have really tied in the makeup of what their family background was and what their childhood was like. And could tie it back into the things that would make him successful and really would just push him. And this is one of the greatest podcasts I've done, not just because I'm a mark 
and a super fan of the blackout stuff. But just because of his story and the way that he puts it so eloquently. And, I mean, the man hits 10-point words left and right, and I felt like a complete moron. But I'm, I'm more just amazed by his ability to show the dark side and the side you don't really hear when you think of the guy who put out so many great hardcore records. And so I'm not going to blather on anymore. Let's get rocking and rolling. This is one of my favorites. I say it every time, but just the more people I talk to and the more they expose the real selves and all these backgrounds, it's just so fucking fascinating to me. And this is, to me, like I said in the No Echo article, like one of my top five, I got a one-day interview, and I was as much as prepared as I could and felt completely like unprepared and just blown away by his story, and I hope you enjoy it. Let's fucking... Go. We are talking to Bill Wilson. For those of you who early on in the podcast saw the No Echo article, this is a top five wish list. Can't believe we're doing this. We're talking to a man who came out with a record label at such an amazing time for New York hardcore. And alongside the New York hardcore scene, put his own touches into the world, not only through the releases that would come out, but in his own hands with his illustrations. And I've always been fascinated by the entire crew from Yonkers and how they kind of came out with such song representation in bands like Breakdown and through uh, Blackout Records. And I'm just so excited to have you on the show. Oh, thanks, Joe. Yeah, man, it means a lot. Like, I've been a fan of the podcast for a while, so I'm happy we got it together. Now, I know we talked with Carl, but I don't want to skimp out on your beginnings. I know you grew up with him, he said, at preschool. But what was your house like? What was the music that was surrounding you? And then because you were an illustrator, like, when did you first pick up and start thinking about drawing? All, so all in once, like a linear. Oh, yeah, like yeah. So, so, I mean, my relationship with Carl, again, we were in like nursery school and, you know, I think he said this on the episode that he was on, but both of our parents are, both of our fathers were World War II vets. Both of wow. us were only children. Um, I lived in an apartment building that had no kids in it. So my, my mom would always take me to see Carl up, you know, he lived probably like a mile away. You know, and when you're a toddler, you don't really walk on your own. Um, so, like, we started being friends, you know, way back. And, you know, our families would go on vacations together. We wound up, you know, being in the same schools for years and years and years. So, you know, I don't have a sibling, but if I did, it would be Carl. Like, we've known each other for now since we're both old as fuck. You know, we are, we've now known each other for over 50 years. So he's my definitely my oldest and dearest and dearest friend. You know, I, I said this on his birthday post, he's seen the good, the bad and the fugly, um, you know, for, for my entire life. Um, but, you know, because my, my father was a world war two vet, I had no relationship to popular music at all. My mother, like Frank Sinatra, like that's literally the only thing she gave a shit about was Frank Sinatra. And she actually preferred quiet in the house. So, you know, I definitely had to do things that were more quiet, you know, and it's not like she would 
beat me up or anything. It's just that she, you know, wouldn't crank, you know, my way or anything. She would listen to, you know, WABC radio or something like that during the day and, you know, listen to, you know, the whatever was generically on the radio, like, you know, Captain and Tennille, Muskrat Love, and, you know, all the generic just hits of, you know, the early 70s, you know, growing up. And my dad, the first songs that I ever learned were my from my dad's old, like, World War II records. So I learned about, like, the Andrews sisters and the original Spike Jones, you know, like, you know, the Fuhrer's Face song, yeah. that like parody song. I learned all that stuff. I also know all the words for like Wing and a Prayer, you know, like all these literal like 40s, like war songs is how I spent my early childhood. Wow. And then, you know, music came as something that was like probably, you know, as I started going to school, I started hearing about things you know, different, different things. And I think you talked about this with, with Luch too, you know, the first genesis of popular music came when I was in like fourth grade and Kiss Alive 2 came out and literally the whole school exploded, right? Like all the dudes in the school were just kiss, 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 kiss. And, you know, I think I saw them on the Paul Lind Halloween special and I was like, what the fuck is this? And that's where kind of my musical, you know, that was like a real musical awakening for me because I had no idea. And then I, I think I saw the Quincy episode of the Sex Pistols, you know, once in a while, you know, like on New Year's Eve, I would stay up and like watch a Don Kirshner's rock concert and I would see a little bit of that, you know, because those shows were still, you know, the late night rock concert shows that were on. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of like my musical, musical start. And then, you know, it just became me and Carl and eventually more people just go into the record stores and now, and sucking was, it all up, sucking up the culture. Was in the, in that culture, because we did speak about this, what what are you drawing at, at, like even in the earliest stages or did the drawing come later? Like, would you get influenced by like records and hip hop? Like, oh, yeah. where, did your, where did your, where did your illustration and the, the idea for drawing began? Well, I was a comic book kid. Right. Okay. Again, because my mom liked it quiet and there were no other kids around. I entertained myself in my own head. So like I would go, you know, to the drugstore, you know, that had the comic selection by like, you know, the Fantastic Fours with my dad on a Saturday, you know, for a quarter. And I would bring those home and I would read them. And I became super interested in kind of like the illustration piece. Again, it was quiet. My, you know, my, my, my grandfather was a pretty great illustrator and he was a, you know, Sicilian immigrant stonecutter who quit school when he was 13, but his illustrations were brilliant. And my mom is actually a pretty brilliant illustrator as well. So, you know, they were more than happy to give me, you know, pencils and paper. And I just started trying to draw comics as a, a little, a, a little kid, you know, and I think they bought me a book called how to draw comics the Marvel way. And it kind of talked about sketching out things in a um, stick figure to get the motion right and the right proportions and then kind of fleshing it out with geometric shapes and then how you kind of bring it all together with smoothing. And it was great. And I read this book like when I was, you know, probably I would say third grade. And then my dad had a job where he would have to go and visit basically retail stores. He was a salesman um, all over the Northeast. So I spent most of my summers in a car, 
um, with my dad. Like we used it as an opportunity for like a giant family road trip. So was this in the was this in the early seventies or late sixties? When was this? Uh, so I was born in sixty seven. So it was all kind of like early seventies, mid seventies. You know what was what was just traveling like at that time period? Because I know um, the highways had only been really started about twenty years before that. So what was it like? At, like because I, I mean obviously everybody listening hardcore wise has been on the 95 and all that stuff. But like, what was it like traveling at that time? I mean, this is something totally off the beaten path of punk was, rock, but I got to know. Yeah. I mean, no, it wasn't, you know, it was where my wanderlust came from and why I always wanted to be on tour. Cause essentially my family was on tour all summer as a kid. And we didn't take the path of like, you know, 95 and the highways were still there. Bronx River Parkway was there. The main, the main, the main interstates were, were, were really there, but, you know, we took this meandering path, right? Because we never stayed in like the Howard Johnson's on 95, right? We always stayed in like a cute little place where my mom wanted to stay in a beach town off the beaten path, right? So even if he was only there for one night, you know, my dad would go off during the day and, you know, do whatever shit that he did with the retailers. And then my mom and I would just basically, I would swim in a pool or be on the beach or draw or read all day because don't forget there was no, you know, there was no TV in the back of a car. There was no DVD. There was no video games in the back of a car. You basically like had to learn to like read comics. And I think I'd probably hit every bookstore from here to like, you know, I don't know, to, to Burlington, Vermont, because every time I would go, I read all the Robert E. Howard, like Conan books. I read so all the Sherlock Holmes books, you know, because I was forced to basically shut up and entertain myself you know, while everybody was driving and, you know, they had the crappy AM radio on that would lose its station probably every 15 minutes and have to get tuned to something else. Wow. That's a kind of an awesome way to spend your summer. I know it's like, it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting way that kind of sets up a lot of your skill sets that will come into place later on, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it did. And then there was one other thing that really kind of set me apart. So, um, I was born with, um, with a, uh, with an immune condition where I can't really fight bacterial infections. And so starting in like sixth grade, um, I started getting lots of pneumonias. And so I was, I was actually out of school for hundreds of days for the next three years. Um, and I was bedridden. The doctors thought I was going to die any number of times. And they even told my mother in front of me, you know, that they thought I was going to be dead. And so, you know, I was at home in our, you know, apartment in Yonkers and I was bedridden because I had 103 fever and could barely walk as a kid. So that also reinforced my need to entertain myself. Um, and it also probably gave me a sense of empathy because I know what it's like to be debilitated um, because I had to work back from nothing, you know, all through high school. And it was a very, it was a very different thing. And, you know, with my relationship to other humans, right, is that when I got back to school, you know, I was still somewhat naive and I was confronted with the harsh reality that, you know, on my walk home from school, because I was a weak one, um, I would have to participate in fight club yeah. and forced to participate in fight club by the, you know, you know, the, the, the children, all the, of all the mafiosos that lived in my neighborhood. Jesus. Yeah. I, I can relate heavily to just wanting to get through school and hope to get to the house without having to fight somebody. 
Yeah, I can only, I can only imagine as someone getting back to their health after fighting off pneumonia and and then having to deal with it in that setting that it, it probably placed an impetus on you to learn how to read people well quickly. And it makes more sense how you have like this deep bomb with Carl. Cause well, you know, a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. That was a very serious cultural impact on my, you know, assessment of who people are and why I chose a lot of the paths that I chose, you know, in my life. So all of this compounds to kind of, you know, I don't want to say trauma because it it was kind of traumatic, but you know, it didn't kill me. So here I am, but it definitely was a little bit of a different path than most kids follow who perceive themselves to be impervious, you know, to anything until they, they actually, I don't know, experience something like that themselves. And that's usually much later in life. Now with being out of school for so long, was there at that time period like homeschooling or was it on you to keep up with your studies? Oh, like my how, did mom that, how, did, how did that work out? Books. Yeah, sorry. Um, my mom would basically hand me books and be like, your teacher sent these assignments home, do them. And I had to do everything by myself. I had to read. I had to take the quizzes. She would sit there when I took the quizzes and monitor me. But no, I had I, basically it was all up to me. There was no tutors. There was no teachers. There was no nothing. But, you know, I still graduated with some pretty, you know, I was able to, well, graduated. You don't really graduate seventh and eighth grade. But I did commencement and I was able to move ahead because academically, you know, my family didn't really care about performing well in sports. My family didn't care about performing well in some of these other stuff. My family was pathological about academia because, again, immigrants, you know, Sicilian immigrants, especially, you know, like any other immigrant culture, Education is the thing that they value most, right? Because it enables you to escape the barriers that the uneducated face. And my grandfather, again, brilliant man, you know, by what his body of work was, but literally didn't take a lick of school after 13 because he was supporting his seven brothers and sisters. Wow. Now, when you said he was an illustrator, was 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 it commercially illustrating or? Oh no! Was, like this was just that was just for that was his pastime. Yeah, yeah, it was just his pastime. Yeah, and he he actually made. I have several of these. He actually turned. He was like a, like a savant at geometry, and he would draw all these intricate geometric patterns, like MS, and, like M C Escher and shit. Yeah, yeah, and he would, and he actually did. He actually sculpted out of marble and sandstone and limestone and a bunch of other things that he got in the quarry. Um, he and one of his sisters actually plotted out a series where it's equally sized stars that, that in three dimensions, kind of like the. Um, the uh, the nautical stars yeah. that were actually plotted completely accurately in around an entire sphere, and he did that with no formal geometric education. He did that with plotting out and understanding geometry basically from in his head. Wow, that's so. A so it's so it's cool, you know. And so you know, when especially when I hear people talk about like you know people being uneducated or not being schooled right. Um, I, I kind of say, go fuck yourself because, you know, anybody from any walk of life, given any education level, you know, can be smart um, and, and can, can have absolute moments of brilliance. So, you know, when I hear kind of this whole elitist attitude about, you know, what school did you go to? It's always like, kind of like, go fuck yourself. 
Nah, I'm I'm with that 100. percent You know, um, my path kind of led me to a GED, even though I had scored pretty high in PSATs. Uh, I chose a path of working with my hands because I knew the outcome financially. I didn't see college as something that I could fit in with. And I have people from time to time that'll say like, well, don't you wish you went to school? But I mean, for what I make and for the jobs that I work, you know, um, I work in nuclear plants, I work in oil refineries, and you would think that that we would be assigned like the ditch digger level mentalities. But I'm going to tell you, I just did a nuclear uh, certification test and yeah, that's you know, no joke, dude. No, it's it's a, it's a it's four hours of learning and then a two hour test. It's not easy. And so when I tell people this stuff, and there's a lot to it, and so I, I feel your disdain when people start trying to you know measure um, merit with like, oh, well, if you didn't go here, then you're only this. And uh, a guest of ours said it's access and exposure, and that's the two things that enable people to grow. And, and I don't it's, fe- it's being curious too. I think that's one of the things is like if you're not a curious person, you're never gonna you're never gonna grow. Oh, absolutely. I feel, I mean, just thinking about with what you said and how your background was that you were kind of like the solid, you're obviously a single child, you're a single kid, you're the only kid in the in the car. You gotta entertain yourself. You're reading, all this is in your own world. So you're thinking in your head that and I mean I grew up in, the, in, in literally the exact same books and the Conan stories, the Sherlock Holmes stories. These aren't like little kids stories. You know, there's a, there's a big wide world. So it only teaches you how to think in a wider world perspective. And it leads in, in obviously in fantasy things. And I feel that there was a black mark or like, Oh, you know, that's like junk reading. And it's like comic books, as we now have learned with the giant success of the MCUs and all this stuff that it's a huge part of the culture now, but it is the first thing that I think kids should read. It expands the mind. It expands the mind. And so although you had, although you had like legitimate, like, like hit, like, like legitimate real fucking barricades from just being like the kid who gets to play college and college football or whatever, your mind was working at a very young age, you know? Yeah. And it's also weird because comics, whether you know it or not, sets up a lot of social justice issues, like, for example, the X-Men or other things. And you don't understand what you're reading because you're just reading stories about, you know, like this disenfranchised group of people because of their powers and their mutants and ew. Right. But there's there's a lot of morality. And I think when you read any biography of like Stan Lee, like you'll know that they built in a lot of a lot of morality into what they did to kind of draw allegories between what comics, what the characters are doing, but you know, but what was really going on in the real world. And you you don't necessarily notice that as a kid, but you start to pick up on those themes. And I think that, you know, maybe subliminally, not so much, especially the whole like good and evil and the taking care of, you know, the, you know, that sense of empathy that the quote unquote heroes always had, you know, did have a mild effect on me because I was so deeply immersed in comic culture again as a kid. I mean, I saw a couple documentaries on Stanley and he was quite the progressive. And so it, it, everything you're saying lines up. I, um, I wasn't deep in the comics, but I was familiar. We had a lot of friends, so more everyone would pass the same ones around. We wouldn't really constantly at the comic book store for a lot of actually one of the craziest reasons is the closest comic book store 
was uh, part of like the wrong side of the tracks. So if you wanted to go there, you knew it could be problem just getting back. And, um, but I, I agree with you in the sensibilities that were laid out in those comics played heavily into a lot of white people. I think in punk rock came into it with a different mindset, especially in that first early wave generation. A lot of those people were way familiar with punk rock. And I mean, even in like with Gary Gygax and what they did with the Dungeon Dragons, the more I talk to people at the earliest stages of this culture, you find yourself not talking to oh. people that were chewing glass and just beating people up, but like well-read, like imaginative, creative humans who were influenced by comics, influenced by books, influenced by, you know, all these different things that I think without that influence early in their own lives, they probably wouldn't be open to punk rock and what would later become hardcore, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, D and D was a part of, you know, as I started kind of being able to, you know, receive guests as I was still sick, my friends would come over, Luch, Carl would come over and we would be able to, you know, and we would have a small group of people that would play D and D. Right. Yeah. And you know, the idea of planning out a story, the idea of being kind of the dungeon master, the idea of being able to like visualize what your little shitty miniature was doing, you know, in the context of this world was, was cool. And it was fun. And again, yeah, that was, you know, like if it, you know, it, it definitely was a stranger things kind of upbringing, basically, you know, if, if you, you know, when you, you know, for the younger listeners, if you've seen stranger things, there's a large component of my life that's contained within kind of some of the general themes of the, of the lifestyle of those kids. No, I agree. I actually, that was one of the best elements of that show, not to derail, but like the fact that they did encompass that because there's something about, and uh, did you roll, did, did Carl, was, were you and Carl playing D and D or was that something that you came into? Oh no, we, we, we did. I didn't even know how we managed to start to play it, but it was one of those things where we played a lot of the tabletop things because again, maybe our parents would get together for like an evening of boozing and we were like subjected to sitting in the basement and yeah, we would listen to, you know, he would get the new queen record, like news of the world and we would play it downstairs and then we would shoot pool or play darts in Carl's family's basement. But eventually, you know, kids have super short attention spans. So eventually it turned to like, well, what else are we going to do? And it's like, Oh, I heard about this shit called Dungeons and Dragons. And I forget exactly what happened. Maybe somebody like a family member of mine got the original, D&D box set for me for like Christmas or a relative got it for me and I was like what is this and we started playing it and then we got into some of these other tabletop games called Car Wars where basically it's like Mad Max and it's like basically wow, a I never car heard arena where you build up cars and you do it yeah I actually have all this shit still sitting on one of these shelves that's fucking awesome uh, you know well what I was getting to is and this this goes heavily into my own world uh Chris from This Is Hardcore uh we played Dungeon Dungeons Dragons when I was like an early teenager. Uh, Damien for Punishment, same thing. But what I was saying is your early, some of our earliest friendships are built at that table. Oh, yeah. And there's uh, one of my oldest, actually like my legit oldest best friend, Brian McKittrick, who doesn't listen to the show. We still talk once a month at the minimum. And he's uh, a veteran for, of the Gulf War, actually of, of Iraq. And he's very involved in his own life, but he's a heavy LARPer still. And we still talk about Dungeon Dragons and it's just like not making that time, but it's something that commitment to that game and the way it, it actually builds like lifelong friendships. Oh yeah. And yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. So the picture I have of my, and, and based off of what I'm talking to you and, and then from what Carl said is that some kids from Yonkers end up at 
is it you guys end up at Mad Platters or did you yeah. go ahead? Did you guys where where was the because he was uh, he's uh, he's a little bit foggier and I think you could probably be more cognizant. Was it was it exploring stuff like Kiss and Motorhead? Like where where did you start expanding to the point where you were going to Mad Platters? Like where did well, that come from? Like so again Saturday afternoon that was not where like we were unsupervised we were unsupervised yeah. so much right so we would take the bus to White Plains we would take the bus up to Crazy Eddie's um, on Central Avenue which was like ten miles away you know which had you know um, this guy named Heavy Metal Hans had a record section and he would have recommendations and then we would go to all the kind of the rock you know once we got the bug right we got the Kiss bug but then we got the ACDC bug and you know, very unusually, we got the deep purple bug instead of the Sabbath bug, um, you know, early on. The first actually Black Sabbath record I listened to was not Black Sabbath. It was the Ozzy solo records, right? Like, Yeah. But, you know, so we started going up there and then, you know, eventually we kind of, you know, Mad Platters was the place because it was only like probably like half a mile from Carr's house. So it was down by the high school, which was basically, you know, just a few blocks away. We would always find ourselves there and we'd always find ourselves in the metal section. I think, you know, leafing through and then, you know, he would pick up the first Metallica and we go back and like the first, you know, the first heavy and, and he would go back. And I remember he picked up the first Venom Die Hard single. And this was probably, you know, right when it first came out, like in the super early 80s, like 81, 82, maybe or maybe even 80. And we'd read about them in Kerrang! And he picked up Die Hard. And I thought it was the most horrible sack of shit stuff I've ever heard. <laughs> right? Because I was still into like Rainbow, right? Yeah. I was thinking about Man on the Silver Mountain. I wasn't thinking about fucking, you know, listening this to... This dirty sounded, yeah. Legion's Iron and Steel. Right? Like, I just <laughs> had no... That was not relevant, right? And But then all of a sudden, like, the aggressive nature of all that stuff kind of took over. As I kind of became healthier and, you know, and, and things like that, I started to kind of realize and kind of some of the embedded sort of frustration and anger issues were more properly expressed by listening to aggressive music. So, you know, Anthrax, Fistful of Metal, you know, I think the first time I met my, you know, my former roommate, Billy Milano, was at an SOD record signing party. Um you know, like there was a lot of, there was, there, there was like, you know, there was just a lot of, a lot of music packed into those few years. And, you know, Carl was there and then that's where we met, you know, James Gibson, ultimately the guy who I was, would start the label with. He was like the high school guy who just knew everything about Motorhead and got us into Motorhead. And there was a guy named Tony Pradlick who was, you know, kind of the shepherd. I think he was probably the shepherd for everybody from Yonkers of like the punk rock generation. Cause he's the guy who would be like, you don't want to listen to, you know, you don't need the new Dio record. You don't need to listen to Dio Sacred Heart. You need to listen to Agnostic Front. Right. Damn. And he was the guy who pushed us from, you know, you know, I think after, you know, I think somewhere after Iron Maiden Power Slave, maybe after somewhere in time, you know, he was just kind of saying like, no, 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 no. Right. That's cool. But. You know, the times are changing. Yeah, the times are changing. We're getting a yeah. little aggressive. We're getting a little bit yeah. more dirty. Punk and rock. Misfits, he would make us all mixtapes. Like he would actually sell the mixtapes of like all the Misfits seven inches before the compilations came out. Like so, the Misfits were like, ooh, ah. Uh, he would push the shit out of Sisters of Mercy on us. 
Um, he would also like go a little crazy and do like shit like Zodiac Mind Warp and the Love Reaction. You know, like he would go, you know, but he would push us. And, you know, he was very instrumental no matter which of the stores that he he worked at to to providing a gateway for, you know, me, Carl, Drago, you know, Don, Rich, because we met Don in high school. So we met Don circa 19, you know, 80, 81 in, 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 in Catholic high school. Now, as all this is like exploding onto you, were, was there even the, the genre separations at that time, or was it all just like explosion of excitement from the different, like the different impactful things that come from music? Like the first time you hear Agnostic Front, you were aware that it wasn't like Rainbow, but it, was anybody really talking about the word hardcore? Oh yeah, I mean it was especially okay. fine section, like. You know, like when you walked into Mad Platters, it was this huge like cavern of a place, right? It would go straight back. It was like a railroad apartment, basically. That was kind of how it was laid out. And all the popular pop and rock shit was kind of at the front. The metal stuff was kind of in the back, one of the back corners. And then all the weirdo shit, like, you know, which was like all the, like the, the Dead Kennedys, you know, like Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables cover, like that freaked me the fuck out the first time I saw it, right? But that was the stuff at the back that I was almost afraid to ask what it was because I had no idea what it was. And then Tony kind of made that back section okay. But, you know, the record stores themselves divided everything into genre. But it was also a sense of personal identity, right? Carl and I were hanging out with other Yonkers people, right? People who we went to high school with or whatever, you know. And we would go to the local high school, you know, the local grammar school yard on Sunday nights, sneak a six-pack of beer out of our parents' house and go listen to, like, you know, accept fast as a shark and all this other shit up at the high school with all the other like, you know, cut off denim friggin' jacket people, right? Like we were. And we identified with a lot of that stuff. All the, you know, the burgeoning guitar wizards, right? Car you know, Carl had yet to pick up the guitar in, in that early in, in that early stage of his life. But like, yeah, we were very well, it was like a social thing. Like metal was the culture, right? And if you weren't gonna be like a Guido or you weren't gonna be a jock. And you were going to be like a metalhead burnout sitting in the woods, like smoking weed, talking backwards, you know, with like Will Raymer um, from Mortician or like Ross Dolan from Immolation, you know, you know, all these kids who I kind of, you know, Carl and I definitely grew up with, you know, we were metal. There are pictures of me, Carl and Don in a graveyard wearing like, you know, leather jackets with friggin' like, you know. The, the the work boots and the whole like bandanas and shit. Like we were full on like, you know, river's edge slayer fucking metal kids. And during that first period of high school and there was this seismic event, you know, Carl picked up AF victim in pain. Um, you know, the first edition at Tony's behest, I picked up black flag, my war. Um, and that, you know, and we had had dabbled in hardcore because we heard DRI, you know, we heard nuclear assault, we heard, you know, lethal aggression, right? Bands who kind of had some, a little bit of crossover. We listened to faster music and it was just kind of like that little tip, but, you know, circa probably 84 and a half, 85, you st we started identifying more with hardcore. And that's was the that was that because of social stuff, or was that just because what you was coming in was getting to be less on the metal side and more just from that from that whole thing? As an adolescent, everybody needs to wear a uniform, right? So yeah. 
So it's kind of like you have to pick who you are, pick your identity. It's like picking your character in a fucking video game, right? You know, you're like, okay, as an adolescent, it's probably different now because genres are bendy now. But as a kid, you were you were very much defined, especially for Gen X, you were defined by what kind of music you listened to because it was part of how you dressed. It was part of who your friends were. It was part of how you were perceived socially. And so, you know, I... Carl, you know, Carl and I basically kind of, we didn't, we didn't make a decree and like roll out a scroll and recite it in town square that we were hardcore now, but it just kind of happened. Right. And that happened over the course of early college, you know, and I have pictures of like, you know, all my, all my IDs from Fordham in the Bronx show like, you know, our, our evolution, you know, of like going to like, first we had like the mullety GBH spiky haircuts. Then, you know, I had this, you know, the kind of super short spiky haircut, you know, and I was kind of like, I, you know, started doing the skater thing. And then I went full skin for like a couple of years. Right. Yeah, I've seen, really seen a couple of pictures of you skinned out on like a train and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That was like, that was some of the earliest pictures. Right. And all of yeah. us, like, you know, when you decide to shave your head willingly. <laughs> right. I, you know, I did well, that. I did that at 16. And I, and I went from a straight long hair to I got tired of getting in fights and someone pulling my hair. And I was like, fuck this. I'm, I'm going to be skinned. I'm skin in. And two, two weeks two weeks later, we got told that we're going to be able to go see Agnostic Front Reunion in 96. And I was so fucking psyched. Oh, uh, that's fucking awesome. Yeah, man. It's kind of the same thing, you know? Like, we just, you know, we decided. And then, you know, we got up the gumption to get to go down to see our first matinee show. And I think it was, I think it might have been AOD like was you know the earliest shows i remember and i don't know who played them exactly but definitely one was af because it was the biggest show ever and i was intimidated by fucking everybody there and i was wearing this like shitty homemade suicidal tendency shirt where everybody just stared me down because they knew i was totally <laughs> that's so um, badass you made your own shirt though oh yeah i might as well have like put out like pit you know fucking you know please fucking noob i might as well have had a neon sign fucking flashing over my head but you know Nobody fucked with me, and it was cool. I met some of the earliest people that I ever met. I think I met Freddie Alba. I met Chaka. Um, I met Dave Koenig. I met the guys from Life's Blood. Like, I met Jason, the singer from Life's Blood, literally like within the first couple of matinee shows. And we started just, you know, getting friends, you know, more friends within the scene from different parts of the city, from wherever. And we would, you know, go down to the city and make a day of it. But, like, the earliest shows were definitely, like, AF and there was like an AF carnivore show that I remember, I think was the, one of the first matinees AOD, the crumb suckers. We saw prong a shitload of times. Um, you know, we saw, um, there was a band called damage. Uh, you know, there was like, and that was back then it was also kind of weird because you still had like the, the remnants of like the first generation. So like the psychos would still play on a bill or, Mental abuse would still play on a bill and Jabby Savage would still be selling his like big city comp outside, you know, CBs. And I could buy that. That's a one big city comp, right? Yeah. And that was a a big city comp was tremendously influential on me. Right. Because it's like the first appearance of Sheer Terror because he put that out in like 84 or 85. Right. Soon after the band formed. Did you know, did you know Paulie back then or not yet? Yeah. Carl and I went to junior high school with Paul. So you, so you knew him, and then he just because he lived out there, he just didn't link up with the Yonkers crowd. You met him again, and- yeah, because he moved. He moved away. Like, well, 
Carl and I went to public school up until eighth grade, and then our parents put us in Catholic school because they were afraid we'd become degenerates. Huh? Well, I guess they freaking <laughs> didn't know. But, um, you know, they. Sorry, if you hear noises, one of my dogs is snoring in the background. So if you hear uh, snoring, no, my, noises, my, it's my, my dog. Room. My dog is my dog is looking directly at me, you like wanting it. to come over. Yeah, I, I see him. So yeah, this is what happens on the show. Dogs are a part of it. <laughs> yeah. Um. Thankfully, they're not farting right now, which is good. No. Um, but um, but but uh, yeah, man, it was uh, it was it was a crazy it was a, it was a crazy great time to be in the. Oh no, we were the- talking about the big city thing, and I got you detracted. So was oh, that right. like the, was that like a was that something that was one of the first things that you bought like directly from the scene? Oh like, yeah, that was like like because Javi had all of his shit like basically on a sheet. Out like you know, like how the homeless guys in New York used to sell shit on like a sheet, and they would display everything. He yeah. had everything just on a sheet and was selling all of his records. And I would just, I just was like, oh, this looks cool. And I've heard of some of the bands on here. And then I also Wendy from Guillotine was selling like live versions of the Guillotine benefit that they had done like two years earlier, and they made cassettes of the of the off the board tape. And I bought that from her. I bought the, I bought the, the. Uh, the uh, ultra, the ultra, the new ultraviolence demo without Tony singing from Charlie from Ultraviolence outside of that first TV show. So it was like it was weird because we got into hardcore literally probably right before the enormous, ginormous metal explosion. So we were there to see a little bit of like what the early days had to offer. Not a lot because I never will call myself like old school, like you know the first generation. But we were definitely early second generation hardcore. And how was that? Was there was there already that moment? Because uh, I, when I spoke to Walter, he said that he in his high school someone was like, "Oh, you're into hardcore. Here's all these fucking seven inches. I'm done." Did you guys, as you were coming into the second generation, were already people like kind of feeling like it was over because like the nihilistics and all these bands were done? Like, how was it as you were walking in? Was there people walking out? It was more attrition, like nobody ever really kind of like said it. Like you noticed the crowd change, like you could notice the crowd change to a more youth crew, more homogenized sound over the course of a couple of years, right? And that was uh, that was the that was when youth started, right? Like it wasn't, it was still there were straight edge people, but not as much till youth. Or yeah, when did you start seeing it? It was like it was a real hardcore show. Like you had like Ed Gein's car playing with AOD, playing with like Prong, playing with Damage. Like these are all the bands, and it was incredibly diverse, right? You had you know you know you know peace punks, cross punks. You had you know Total Skins. You had you know the skater kids like doing ollies and boneless,es like Timmy Chunks would come and do freaking crazy tricks in front of CBs and stuff. Like it was like it was a really interesting assortment of you know you know island of misfit toys at that point it was not homogenized and you weren't expected to be homogenized you know at that point and i would say that like there was a gold that golden era in that kind of like you know 86 87 88 range that was really a very very special time and it's where breakdown and you know killing time really got started now I, I assume because of your closest with Carl that as those guys started to jam, you you were like a a major part of like you were like a like a an un, 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 unplaying member of the band. So because of this like interest that you had, do you think that you had a would you have any hand in anything breakdown was uh, did 
doing like from the beginning or like were you more or less Carl telling like where was your, what was your interaction within the band structure? I just kind of hung out, you know, I guess the Beatles, you know, they had George Martin, who was like the fifth Beatle. I was like, yeah. you know, kind of like Breakdown's fifth moron, right? You know, like I would sell the show. I sell the merch at the shows. You know, I would hang out at the practices. We would all go out to eat afterwards because like these guys were all my friends. Like, you know, and I don't I, I don't think I was instrumental in any decisions I ever made or anything were truly creative. But like I did do a lot of art you know, stemming from my other things. Like I was always still drawing and now I had a reason to draw. So I was kind of like just continually drawing. Like, and when breakdown needed a logo, I was like, I'll do this brick logo thing. Right. You know, it's still one of the most iconic logos in the history of hardcore. Right. But it's kind of like, again, like that was drawn on Carl's parents' kitchen table, like over the course of like a few hours, I may have honed it a couple of times, but like that was like drawn again, on Carl's parents' kitchen table, you know, with all that youthful energy and creativity that you have when you're that age. And I didn't think anything of it. I was like, you guys want to use this? And they're like, oh, that's fucking cool. Yeah, sure, we'll do it. And then, you know, I drew a bunch of stickers for them. Um, you know, the, 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 the kind of 50-foot skinhead moshing through the building that was on the cover of the one of those LPs that they, that they reissued. I think Jeff you know, release that with an, with some, some label. Um, it became the skateboard where it was basically like attack of the 50 foot skinhead. Yeah. You know, I drew that again. That was me and Jeff were at his Jeff's house listening to Celtic frost. And I just said, dude, I got an idea. Give me a Sharpie. And like, I just sat on Jeff's bedroom floor while we were listening to Celtic frost. And I drew that thing again in Sharpie in like 20 minutes. Like I didn't, no. you don't really think you just do at that point. And then I did those, it was like a moshing rat sticker that I did for breakdown that I don't even think I have a copy of. And so like, I became like a flyer drawer guy, like an illustrator guy, you know, because I always secretly wanted to be an illustrator, even though I was in business school, I always wanted to be a graphic designer and illustrator. Like my penultimate thing was like, I want to design record covers. Like, I think that would be the greatest job in the world, taking two things that I love and putting them together. Um, and ultimately, I was able to do that, right? Um, but, you know, it was, it was just kind of like that's So that's how I got my start, being kind of their artist and just being their friend and just kind of, you know, hanging around and just kind of like, you know, occasionally there was one Killing Time song where, like, I told them that it sounded exactly like Leeway, I think. And they were like, oh, fuck, it does. And I was like, yeah. So I think that was my most major contribution to uh, anything structural for any of the bands. Now, I, I, I would be remiss if I fucked this up and not ask this question. As a comic book kid, you did mention uh, Wendy and Guillotine, which was one of the earliest New York hardcore zines. Where, what was the zine culture like? And obviously with the illustrations and the artwork, was, was that something that piqued your interest when you first started seeing yeah. them around? Yeah, I mean, I bought every zine I could get my hands on because, again, that was the, that was the bulletin boards. And those were the bulletin boards and the Facebook groups of, of yesteryear, right? You know, and you couldn't do anything without it. You know, you would call 212 OPEC SID to find out where shows were, right? So that was like, you know, basically it was a, a, a phone number with a recording of what bands were playing at what shows in New York City. Like, it was literally, that was the, that was the phone number you would call to find out who was playing where. And then you would buy all these zines. I did one illustration for Guillotine um, for an ad in Maxim Rock and Roll. I think that was my, my biggest thing. I, I Again, I probably have a clipping of it or a photo of it somewhere, but that's probably lost to the 
lost to the lost to the years at this point. But yeah, I I I never really contributed to a lot of zines because I was again still operating so much in my own head that I would do my own creative shit and I kind of wasn't worried about like building my portfolio in in a weird way. Like I just kind of just did what I did for my friends because if I didn't do it for my friends, I wasn't really interested. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I mean that's your motivation, you know, like I don't know if I would do this, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, for my boy, I'll do it. It makes sense. Right. And it was, you know, it wasn't like oh, I was lazy. It was just like the creative juices only really started flowing when I understood the people involved and kind of like was able to get like immediate feedback from them on if they liked it or not. Right. And, you know, all those guys were, were definitely not shy. So that's how that whole thing evolved. Like, you know, again, I wasn't the, I wasn't the, uh, the fifth Beatle. I was definitely the fifth moron. Now, do you remember who or what helped them get? Because when I asked Carl, I was like, I don't know, you know, we just we couldn't get into the city for shows. So you had to have gone on some of them road trips, or do you not go to the road trips where they went to like Albany and all these crazy ways like New York hoods and shit? Oh, I mean, I went on every road trip they That's ever what I right. So you did go on all that. So like, do you remember which was it rich? Like who was how to how because it's one of the most interesting things in this whole thing is like as you're laying out about what's going on in New York hardcore, there obviously was tons of shows and breakdown kind of didn't break into it. And one of the things I said is to Carl on the show, from playing like twelve or thirteen shows before their first big C B show, not only did it give a chance for people in the city to check out the demo and then build like a holy fuck, when's this band gonna play? But there also was it you don't really see too many bands at that time without playing New York City and a CB show playing out of town. So what the hell drove them guys out of town? Like what got them out of town really? What what the what, what I mean, yeah, I mean, what what got them into town I think was what got Not them in, into like, town. Like what the, the more like what got them out of town? Like how the hell how the hell did they link up? Was it just because they knew Gavin and out in New York hoods? Like like I, I, mean, no, always... I mean it was all serendipity, right? I mean, I think the first few shows was you know their first show was at a church in Mamaroneck, New York, where I think you heard they sh- like yeah. literally started playing and the crowd went ape shit and all the freaking, you know, parents freaking took their kids out of there in fear. But everybody who was at that show who was hardcore were the original people from the Anthrax in Connecticut. Like a lot of them, the band Zombie Squad who opened for them or played before them or whatever it was. Zombie Squad, you know, you know, because don't forget, we'd all been going to the Anthrax to see shows for years. You know, when Breakdown, when when the new Anthrax, you know, opened up in Norwalk, literally we were one of the first people to write graffiti in that place. Like we literally <laughs> went up to see like Seven Seconds or Verbal Assault or something. And I think people forget this because it's like this thing. But like the first name for Breakdown that Don came up with wasn't Breakdown. It was Insane Confusion. That's a tidbit. And Don actually scrawled a giant insane confusion on these pristine walls in this brand new club called the Anthrax. Like he did a <laughs> terrible throw up of this thing. And I was like, the fuck are you doing? He's like, I don't know. We got to promote the band. I'm like, okay. So they were playing those shows. They were playing the they shows. Play under the name oh, of okay. That was before the first show. That was like, oh, that was like, that was in there just fans or getting it ready. Okay. That I probably get it. wasn't even in the band then. He just, Don just had yeah. kind of the idea and impulsively did it. But the, like the first collective name for, Carl, Don, and Rich, and maybe Lou, the original drummer, was insane confusion. And that lasted probably a grand total of like a weekend, right? 
but it was without question. And Carl, Carl will will back me up because he'll remember it was definitely insane confusion. What's great is um, thinking about someone going to the anthrax, like who the fuck is this? Right, especially because it was, it, was, it, was, it was fucking giant. It was it was incredible. It was like the I don't want to say it was like a subway car fucking thing, but like it was it was really too enormous for a brand new club to like not. It was just incredibly ostentatious. Yeah. Um, but because we had been hanging out at the Anthrax so much, all of those kids became our friends, right? And it was a no-drinking club. We became friends with all the, the ladies that worked the, you know, the bar, which was really just a soda and juice bar. And so like everybody came to the when we were then finally, you know, you know, the band was ready to play its first show. All these people from the Anthrax showed up. And then that's how they got the gigs at the Anthrax. And then the Anthrax was a really big deal because there was a lot of cross-pollination between the Anthrax and the scenes in Boston and the scenes in Albany and the scenes wherever it is. So I think the, the Brian and Sean from the Anthrax really helped break down break. And then when they did the demo, there was no better person than Dwayne because Dwayne really adopted them. Dwayne really adopted their sound and pushed the fuck out of that demo at some pushed the fuck out of it. So between kind of having this thing and don't forget the youth of today guys and the bold guys were not, they were from Katona. They were from upstate New York. So they would go to more anthrax shows than they would go to CB shows also. So as that was happening, you know, I think, you know, one of the rays called Don for like a show in New York at the, at the, was it the Lismore or the, um, pyramid or whatever and you know nobody believed that it was ray i think they hung up on them um but i think that it was really kind of the like the 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 net it was almost like you know it was the networking catalyst from the anthrax to that family of people up there and then secondarily rich's relationship with Dwayne because he was the guy who was selling the demos to Dwayne, that kind of really enforced you know that really enabled them to enter new york for what turned out to be some of their last few shows in that first lineup. How'd that feel as like a, as a friend, you're watching this band grow and then it's like, we're finally, you're watching them finally play the city. How'd it feel seeing that the band was like on the verge of some promise, but internally there was like strife. Like how did, like, how did you, how did you view it? I mean, I'm not, I'm not worried about the, like the, the nitty gritty details, but like, I always wonder from like the outside looking in, like, fuck like do they realize like this band's great or you didn't think the, that the breakdown was oh, I love their music. like i was probably also one of their biggest fans right i i know and still know every word to er, almost every killing time song and every uh, you know every every breakdown song i know every word to every breakdown song and you know um and so it's kind of like you know i felt great because you know, this band of dudes who I love, who are friends of mine for, you know, now between five and 18 years or 19 years, which was the span of our lives then, you know, you know, these guys were becoming successful. And it was cool to see because we were getting invited to more and more shit and being social is very, very important to, you know, 20 year olds. And instead of being kind of these wallflowers at shows where we would keep to ourselves, like, People wanted to know us and people wanted to see it. And we got to see Albany. Like, it's weird that like the road trip was part of the magic. Being invited to play these quote unquote strange, unusual places was part of the magic. Being able to be that vagabond on the road and have that 4 a.m. meal at Denny's 
was part of the magic. It wasn't just about the show and it wasn't just about adulation or adoration or like selling merch. Success wasn't even part of what anybody talked about. We were living in the moment. Absolutely. We were just enjoyed what, 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 what the fuck was happening and probably half didn't realize what could have happened because we were naive kids. That's got to be like one of the things that, and, and I've gone through it myself, where it happened so fast and then now you're looking back at it. It's, it's like that's such a formative time. And I have to wonder, because of, you have already laid out so many things that are going to come into play with uh, Jim Gibson and some records. At, and I know at some point there is this explosion of bands, obviously, Break day, break way, um, breakdown makes uh, a sudden end, and raw deal starts right up. And I don't know how much you ever talked about this, but what was the impetus in you seeing all these bands come up, or what was the thing to make you start thinking like, I want to do something like the one big city? Like, what was the what was the inertia point like when you first had the aha? We should try to do this. It was really me wanting to do a record cover. And like nobody would hire me to do a record cover. So I was like, oh, man, I have all these like skills that I want to do this. And, you know, it was probably Drago and Carl kind of encouraged me. And because I, you know, knew the guys in Lifeblood ever since I started hanging out in the scene, I was like, hey, I'm thinking of doing a comp. And, you know, doing a label back then, doing a label back then was hard. So it wasn't easy because there was no Internet. There was like you had to find out pressing plants from like using the yellow pages like, you know, you layouts weren't done on computer. You had to learn, you know, mechanical paste up, which was like a very physical thing. Like a record itself had to be laid out on a 24, you know, you know, on a, on like a 36 by 24 inch board with like blue guidelines on it. And if it was cockeyed on the layout, it would be cockeyed on the friggin' final print. So like, I learned how to do all that stuff myself, you know, mechanical drawing, all that stuff. And setting up what they call paste up and mechanicals in the in the in the in the physical design space, you know, using Pantone design chips to 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 deal with the cover. So it was hard. And you know, I, I one day it was kind of this like twofold thing. So I wanted to put out a record. I thought I was going to, and I was like seeking information. Jim Gibson, who again was working at Mad Platters and some of the other stores, you know, we I had money from like by then I had become more physically fit and I was actually a lifeguard and I could swim like miles and miles a day. Um, and so I had money saved up from that summer job and Jim had money saved up from doing his record shows because he would buy and sell records at record shows. And we said, dude, do you want to do a record? And then. When I was downtown one day, I stumbled across this book called um, How to Make and Sell Your Own Record by Diane Rappaport. And it was at this little fanzine store. You know, I forget where it was. Um, I know it was across the street from a lingerie store, but I forget exactly what street it was on, like Fifth Street or, you know, between, you know, second and third or some shit. And it was the world's greatest place for zines and for music books. And they, I found this book on a low shelf and I was like, I bought it. And I read that thing cover to cover like a thousand times. So between me and Jim, my design skills, me knowing a bunch of the bands, um, you know, the impetus from my friends who were like Drago and Carl was like, yeah, Breakdown, I'll give you a track or whatever it is. Or by that time it was Raw Deal, you know, Breakdown then, you know, wanted to be on it because Raw Deal was on it. And then Life's Blood were on it. And then, word got around. I had become friendly with Mark Newman from Sheer Terror. 
because I was actually a huge Sheer Terror fan before I even realized, knew, realized that the singer from Sheer Terror was the kid I knew from seventh grade. I had no idea that Paul Bearer was Paul Poplowski from seventh grade. I had no <laughs> idea because he looked totally different, right? Bald head, shaved eyebrows, like intimidating as fuck. Like he was not the he same. He had tattoos. Thing. He had tattoos like the early. But only like, a few. Like, you know, and he didn't have any in seventh grade, right? Like, yeah. You know, he, you know, he was like, you know, chubby looking bulldog kid carrying around a plasmatics record on the first day that I met him. He still punched a kid in the face the first day of school. But <laughs> like he did 100%. Carl how did and I, you, uh, how did you run into maximum penalty? Bronx. It was like they were just like friends. Oh, because the Yonkers of Bronx. Okay, yeah, yeah that makes and sense. Mark, and Mark, the drummer, was like cool, and he was like part of like that extended family of like Freddie Alva and Chaka and whatever. And so, you know, this little crew of people just started talking, and it galvanized into this. And then Mike from Raw Deal is like, you know, you should put some unusual stuff in there. Why don't you do Norman Bates in the Showerheads? Right? And I was like, Norman Bates in the Showerheads? He's like, yeah, they're like punk rock. They're from Queens. Jim, Jim runs this record store that supports everybody out there. Like you want to be different. And that was something that I really wanted to do with the label is like, I wanted to follow the Javi mold where I wasn't just doing what was popular. I wanted to do was like shit that people should hear and people, things that people should know about. So that's why, you know, people think that Norman Bates and the shower had stick out like a sore thumb, but there was a reason and a purpose is because they were just as much part of the fabric of the culture as killing time or gorilla biscuits. I remember in a different interview, you had cited the New York thrash comp. And I think that the Norman Bates stuff just reminds me of the exactly what you're talking about, where in the first generation of hardcore, it was new. So everybody kind of had their own sound. And as we were talking about the homogenization, the where the wild things are comp still doesn't have one sound as much as, you know, it's, different people in the scene and their take on hardcore. And so it and makes total sense. That you, that's always what yeah. I wanted was a throwback to those records that I had revered so much as like, you know, you know, when I say as a young hardcore kid, I mean somebody from three years earlier who was just learning shit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, me getting into hardcore late 85 circa 86, going to my first show and starting blackout was basically the span of like three or four years, which is a lifetime when you're an adolescent, but is the blink of an eye. You know, but again, you know, I had eschewed my metal roots and, you know, I would tell everybody that was, I was born with a bald head. Well, technically I guess I was, but. (laughs) (laughs) Now, um, you were cognizant that they were starting to do rev records and there was the way it is comp. Was that something that, were you even aware of that? Cause obviously socially. Oh yeah. I mean, I knew revelation was there and I knew it was there, but like, you know, and this is no secret. I fucking hate it. Like. I actually didn't mind some of the dudes in some of the bands, but as a elitist musical fucking group of like, you know, jocks, you know, that I perceived straight edge to be and how judgmental they were like, that wasn't hardcore to me. Like, it just seemed like yet another fucking exclusive club that I wasn't able to get into unless I friggin' like, you know, started friggin' dressing the same and talking the same and acting the same and, you know, talking about the same things and like living by somebody else's rules. And that was completely unfucking punk to me. Right. So, and the, the hilarious thing is I was actually straight edge. Like <laughs> I didn't really drink, but I didn't drink for my own reasons. I didn't, you know, like, you know, like the whole, I didn't smoke. I didn't, I didn't smoke because of my lung problems. Like I've never smoked weed fine, but cigarettes never. 
um, now. Um, but no, no fucking way, you know, like I just looked at it as just kind of like another elitist, elitist thing. And I, and like, you know, Jordan from Revelation was not straight edge. Right. And I am actually friends with Jordan. And, you know, I kind of look back at my, you know, you know, adolescent, you know, kind of like, I guess not anger, but, you know, kind of being ultra judgmental about them to the point where I wanted to almost start, not necessarily that, but like kind of the anti-revelation in that way. Like, well, that's I how I, I read other, I, I read other interviews positive. like that. I read other interviews earlier that was kind of saying different people said that and you've never said it, but I read other interviews where they looked at the, where the wild things are as the counter to the way it is. And, and I read and an interview. And I read it. Like I wanted to be punk, like life's blood. I wanted to have like strange shit on like Norman Bates. Like I wanted to have new ideas and things that like harkened back to like my earliest days in the scene that I remembered so fondly, as opposed to this kind of like rah, rah, we're all in this big sports team kind of thing. And if you're not on the train, you're an outcast. Like I was already part of a fucking outcast group. How do you be the outcast of the outcasts? Now, I, I also read um, where you were talking about this, where it, you're almost, you didn't say clone, but you were basically saying that it was, you know, the homogenization, like everybody started just following the same thing and you were either in that group or you weren't. Now I've always wondered where the people who were in the first generation, obviously like Ray and them adopted and really like got behind the straight edge thing. But like, I always wanted to hear from someone who had pushback like yourself, seeing people come in, moving to the city, straight edge becoming a thing and everybody's shifting. And so what were you, were you alone in that or were there more people? Obviously I know Paulie had his say. It was a very personal thing for me. Like I didn't ever like, you know, I didn't write a screed and a zine on it or a freaking you know, Facebook post on it or whatever. Like it was just one of those things that it, it, it was in my head. Again, me being a guy that lives in my head a lot. Like it was just about like saying like, this is my vision and this is what I want to do. And I kind of just put the people together that kind of had what I thought were similar ideas. Hmm. Now, now, it wasn't like a con- it wasn't a conscious thing. It was a reactionary thing. Yeah. It was very no, yeah. You, yeah. You weren't you weren't sitting there going, "Who's who's the beef? I'm going to have something appears, and you're like, I don't agree with this." Oh, I didn't actually want beef. I don't. I don't. Never have, and never will really actually want beef with anybody. I just think that you know. A clash of ideas is important to maintain the vitality of this music. I could, I absolutely could not agree more. And I think that, uh, I find it also interesting that only Breakdown and GB ended up being on both comps. Like, yeah. And, and, and it's like kind of cool because, you know, if knowing those guys personally now, they're like the easiest going chill as guys yeah. and I can see them fitting it and I, like, I see GB I see G fitting in both worlds just as easy as I see breakdown yeah. being not a youth crew band but not not accepted by that crowd right you know and that was it like the, the like when you have the Venn diagram of the comps you have these two kind of anchor bands who were who were there and again it was all because of friendships like Gorilla Biscuits was on it the Biscuits were on that comp primarily because of Anthony from Raw Deal Outburst is on that comp because of Anthony from Rodeo. Like he introduced me to the guys from Outburst, right? You know, cause you know, Queens and yeah. you know, this way they sounded. And he like was, he was blown away by their demo and heard the hard way. I think at a practice cause he went to the same Catholic high school as all these guys. Right. 
um, Saint, I think St. Joseph's Prep in Astoria. But like he had known all these kids since they were kids before they could play. And so he's the one who introduced me to Outburst. So, you know, for as much as I want to say that Where the Wild Things Are was this amazing concoction, it was just a collection of like friends of friends and kind of like how it turned out and people with different ideas. Now, once you form, and I know obviously pulling that together, especially then, no internet, it's got to be a pain in the ass to just get everything together. Did you or Jim have anybody besides Dwayne from some to kind of guide you on how to get distribution or were you talking to people from MRR? Like how did, how did you get the, how did you get the record out? Like beyond the city? I was like the, like not necessarily the production guy. Cause all I did was get the masters in from people. Like I didn't go into the studio. I mean, I went to the studio with breakdown and Rodeo for the demos, but I didn't like, I, I hadn't no jack shit about engineering. Um, like that's just not part of my skill set at all. I can barely use pro tools to mix you know, fucking podcast shit, as I told you before we started talking uh, on the podcast. But like, you know, my skill set was the art part and the A&R part, you know, like the kind of creative part, the illustration, the kind of vision for the creative. And at that early part of the business, even though I and like a little bit of the accounting side, like because I had gone to business school and I learned what accounting was and what a P&L was and, you know, profit and loss and how to like judge things about break even like how many you need to sell to make your money back and all that shit like i would that was kind of my remit and then jim because he worked at a record store had all these contacts from other record stores because people who'd meet other record stores he would go to distributors he would go to these places called one stops where you would buy records he knew the people at relativity because the salespeople would call the store all the time and he would do some of the ordering for some of the stores that he worked at he had these lists and all these other things that he you know, put together. So he was the more distribution business minded. He was friends with Bleaker Bob, right? He was friends with all the, you know, local retail stores, right? So that was more of Jim's kind of thing in the beginning where, you know, he was kind of in charge of that side of it, um, you know, for where the wild things are. Now, I, I, I'm not like a super record nerd with thousands of press and all that stuff, but I have to wonder how exciting it was to see this thing. Cause this was supposed to be just a record cover, how it felt to see it go from an idea to the physical copy. And then obviously the, the response had to have some kind of awesome reward to it. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, it was so validating because like it did, like I was able to execute an idea as a, like basically a, like a 19 or 20 year old, however the hell old I was, you know, it came out and like, I just remember me and Jim being like, Little kids, when we first opened the box of, you know, the gold, you know, the shit brown splatter and like basically like piss and shit, you know, friggin swirl. That was like the limited edition colored vinyl that came out with the first edition of the Where the Wild Things Are. And, you know, it was it was freaking amazing. Right. It was, the, you know, it was like, look at this. Like we actually made something like and it was, again, unique back then because. Not too many people were able to do that. Like, I mean, it was my design on the cover of that. It was Rich Unhock's picture of Paul Bear on the back of that. It was the pages created by the band that were in that fanzine. It was the music that these guys had so, you know, had 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 been so generous enough to 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 to, to give me, you know, to use on the comp. Like, these were the craziest. That was it. Was probably one of the most rewarding thing. And then the response, 
you know, was kind of like, you know, we had done a lot of pre-marketing and flyers. So like people knew that it was coming out and everybody was, you know, pretty excited about it. But Dwayne was over the moon about it. He, you know, um, you know, and then the, even going to Bleaker Bob's, um, it was funny because Bob was notorious for being kind of a jerk. And we went in there with, you know, like three boxes of the records and Craig Flanagan, who is the big, tall, like six, four, six, five, six, six skinhead that used to work behind the counter, um, who later became uh, the, uh, you know, the principal in God is my co-pilot. Um, you know, uh, he, um, he, uh, you know, we walked in with these records and Jim, you know, we said, Hey, we got this comp we want to sell. And Bob's like, we don't want any. So of course me being the impulsive fucking moron that I am, I was like, well, fuck you. Then you're not getting it. And I stormed out of the place. The brilliant sales technique. You know? <laughs> um, and Jim like, you know, too true to his friggin' calm, like super dude nature stayed in there. I was like, Hey man, you know, you kind of need this. And you know, think look at all the bands here and craig's like we need to take all these now and they did and we got paid cash and we sat there and like i remember we had like pizza on blackout records for the first time with that handful of cash from blackout and then we went down 8th street selling them to every fucking store right and then i would take that shit on the road and put it in the car with me wherever killing time played i would have the friggin' records with me and you know and then you know we had, you know, we would, we solicited to all the distributors that were there because Jim knew who to solicit to. I did a nice fancy, you know, one sheet, which is how you would solicit to people telling about the record. And, you know, Caroline bought a shitload, Relativity bought a shitload, Important bought a shitload, a Revolver bought a shitload. Like, so it was like a thing. And like, all of a sudden the reorder started coming and we had no idea what to do. And it was like, wow. oh, shit, this is fucking like crazy. And like, and then at that point, it kind of like, as a business school student, it kind of dawned on me. I was like, am I in the record business? Like, is this, is this, is this, is this a thing? Is this really a thing? Like, you know, I thought it was going to sell out and like, hopefully sell out and we'd make our money back. And, you know, I would have made like a mild impact on culture and like people would know who I was. And I felt like I was contributing to the scene, not just a consumer and a hanger on. And it turned into a lot more than that. And it's pretty amazing. Right. So I just remember being me and Jim be just being like giddy school children about all this shit because it was we we didn't we didn't plan for any of it to happen. It just kind of like stepped in, you know, you know, it was like stepping in. It was like stepping in dog shit. You don't kind of realize you're in it until you start your foot slides. So what's the what's the what happens first? Do you think, man, this has traction? I want to go ahead and put something else out or did people start saying, well, what's your next thing? What was the, what was it? Which one it was, was it? A combination of both, right? Jim, uh-huh. like soon after we did like the cassette pressing of where the wild things are, like Jim had way different ideas about what music was than I did. Like he started getting into some crazy, you know, like noisy stuff. And it just wasn't like, it was like, you know, it was like take amphetamine reptile and just like play it backwards. Like with, with, with like, you know, I don't know, sawdust on the, on the, uh, on the, on the, on the platter. And that's kind of what it was. Like he liked a lot of really super noisy, noisy, noisy stuff. And I was 100% hardcore. Right. And I said, well, I guess the best thing to do is kind of like, you know, I want to follow this up with Outburst and Outburst knew that, you know, 
you know, so I followed it up very quickly with like Outburst and basically all the bands that I could, you know, all the bands on the comp that that wanted to do some kind of record. I just kind of quickly said, hey, I guess that comp went good. You want me to do a seven inch? And it's like, yeah, sure. Cool. You know, and it just again, just happened. And then I, you know, it's not like I released a real shitload of records. Like everything was painstaking. Everything was a labor of love. You know, it was all about, you know, my friends. It wasn't really about, you know, yes, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to lose any money. You know, Outburst and Uppercut and the, even the sheer Terror 7-inch, you know, the live at CBGB's were all just, you know, kind of fell from the tree of where the wild things are. Because at that, you know, I, I, I grew to be very friendly with Paul after that, you know, and... You know, and Newman, right? Definitely Newman, you know, who was, who was, you know, still a very, 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 very dear friend. And, you know, all these guys, and they were far more than just kind of like artists on the label. They were, you know, like a community of people and they all played shows with each other. They all toured with each other in the Northeast. They all did things together. You know, um, the Uppercut guys were roommates with Carl at Fordham. You know, so it was all this like intertwined, like very, very small, you know, and I use the word family like a million times, but it was, it was, it was like our little scene of that group of bands. Now, what was the reason how, or I should say, why do you, why did you not do Brightside? Why, how did in effect be the choice for them for that? Um, you know, at that point, they were big, and they had like big labels. When you labels. say big, when you say big, like what, like by, yeah, by that context, big shows, right? It was kind of like you know, and you already had kind of like the template of sick of it all signing to in effect. You had the template of AF signing to in effect. You had the template of the Chromag signing the profile, and for all intents and purposes, they were you know, it was pretty plain to see that they were on that kind of trajectory, right? So the band themselves was kind of like saying like, hey, we could do this. Right. And so they wanted to be able to go record. You know, I didn't really, I mean, despite the fact that the label was kind of successful, I still didn't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. Right. I was still, you know, like eking out money to put bands in the studio. Like I was still trying to figure and figure out how to deal with my cash flow because distributors would order more, even though they didn't pay, you know, $30,000 in invoices that they had outstanding. Right. So it was always being super cash poor. And I just didn't have the resources to like make an investment in, in, and be competitive with any of these other labels. I didn't have a press department. I didn't have a retail department, you know, and when, you know, and, and, and Carl, Carl will, will say like, you know, they, they didn't, you know, Chris Williamson approached them. They were approached by a bunch of other labels and ultimately like, you know, they were able to go to relativity, but their relationship with relativity actually helped me get a career in the music business. So I can't really complain. <laughs> now you touched on something that Darren and I had talked about where it doesn't, it doesn't help the labels at times when you're getting all these uh, orders to ship out to distributors and they're late on payment. And then, you know, I, I, I mean, he was saying at times, you know, distros would hold on to them and they would not sell and they would send them back. Yeah. And, that was the game. I mean, That's the retail game, man. It's returns and holding your invoices hostage. And, you know, 
because ultimately what they want to do is they want to take your rights from you and be able to press your records indiscriminately and then just forget that they owe you any money. That's the way it well, was. I mean, that's what I wanted you to. That's what I wanted you to get into is how the the distributors were hurting some of these small and growing labels because it oh, seemed like that became a trend. That was a. I mean, that was perpetually a racket in the physical world. It's totally different now, you know, with digital and direct to fan and things like that. Like you know, all the reissues that I'm doing now are completely under a different business model than the old days. But in the old days, you had to conform with how things worked. They would give you a purchase order. They would want reorders. They would want to be assured that they would get reorders to fill reorders because they would always hold your check over your head. And some companies were more honorable than others. Some companies were fly by night and, you know, not saying who, but at some point you had to send a few friends with a bicycle chain and a lock to go collect your money. No, I actually had to do something like that even at the end of the nineties. So right. it seemed like it, it seemed like there was always that distributor thing and that had to hang heavy over your head. And obviously I appreciate you explaining the bright side thing. Cause looking at, looking at the early releases, I mean the uppercut outburst um, later, you would do the breakdown demos. You had the sheer terror live seven inch. I mean, you, you were still working in your friend group and I have to wonder if, at the time you were doing it a little bit out of a labor of love and a little bit out of just that, that that was what you were interested with working at, because obviously you're talking about being aware of the business. You kind of knew like where you were limited, right? Oh, I, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't want to expand beyond that group of people. Like I didn't, I still didn't have a fleshed out vision of where I wanted the label to be. I still didn't really consider myself to be a label guy. I was a hardcore kid who put out records and I was a hardcore kid who put out records for my friends. And I didn't necessarily apply the same business acumen that I learned in school to my execution of the business as a label, right? So that that was it, you know. And you know, my dad tried to counsel me a number of times on collecting money and him doing the books. And of course, I was a willful, petulant child, and I didn't, you know, I didn't listen. Um, but you know, everybody when they start their first business zigs when they should have zagged quite a bit. Right. And that's what I did. You know, I'm sure like your first few shows, you know, presented you with some difficulty, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I wish to God that I had half of what I know now in my hands in the first 10 years. Yeah, fuck yeah, dude. Now, where where do you go when you're just doing this for your friends? Like you said that you would eventually get the business, uh, you would get a job within the record industry. So where did that come in? Did that come in as you're still releasing the early stuff or did that come later? Oh, yeah. So it came in pretty early, like right after the Sheer Terror record. It's like, you know, because I knew a lot, right? I knew how the records got put out. I A&R'd records. I friggin', you know, got records manufactured. I did all this shit myself. I could do every job at a record company by the time I was like 21. I called retail stores to sell direct. I called, you know, I, I collected money. Um, you know, from places I knew the basis of accounting. I understood how the invoicing and return system worked at, at distributors all before I ever walked into the relativity building. And so when they signed to relativity, of course, you know, I had an idea that I wanted to work at record companies and the motivation for me was, you know, I bet they have a lot of lists of retail stores out there and they have a list of a lot of radio stations, college radio stations that play hardcore because they release all these records. I'm going to go out there and see if they want to give me a copy of a mailing list. 
So I tagged along with Killing Time, and eventually I started making friends with all the people that worked there. Half of them were hardcore kids who went to shows, right? And I started making friends with everybody that worked there. While Killing Time was upstairs doing their meeting, I was shooting the shit with friggin', you know, the publicist, Steve Martin, right, who who was from AF, <laughs> right? When, you know, you know, I made friends with Harry Abrams, who was the lead A&R guy there. I made friends with the retail people who were working there. I made friends with the college radio people that worked there. And eventually I started just going out to Relativity myself. Um, I would actually just bring people out to lunch on Fridays and we would call it hate lunch. And we just, just go outside, just literally, I would bring out like 10 people to a place called the Garden of Eating um, out in Hollis. And, you know, it was like this quote unquote healthy restaurant, probably the only one in miles from the Relativity Warehouse. And, you know, it would be Steve Martin, Perry Serpa, like, you know, and a bunch of the other folks from from Relativity. Um, Brian Freeman, who was one of the art guys, sometimes Dave Bett, who was the lead, lead art guy out there. Um, and we would just like talk shit about everything. Like it was just a hilarious thing. And then finally, you know, at some point, you know, because these guys kept letting me into the office on Fridays, I had access to the people that would cut the checks. So on Fridays, Alan Becker, who was the, the guy that ostensibly was like the label liaison for Relativity, who's still in the business, who I'm still very dear friends with, I would appear at his desk and be like, so Alan, can I get a check? Alan, can I get a check? Can I get a check, Alan? Alan, can I get a check? Where's my check? Can I get a check? And then he would send me upstairs to Tova Hoffman, who was behind two steel fucking buzz-in doors. And, you know, she worked for Barry Coburn, who was the owner of Relativity at that point. And she'd be like, yeah, you're here every week. How do you get inside the building? I was like, I got friends. And she's like, okay, so we owe you like, and you know, fill in some like, you know, $30,000. Can I give you a check for $5,000 today? I'm like, sure. Cause I'll be back next week anyway. And literally that's how my relationship with relativity was. And because I was such a fucking pain in the ass, when, when Howie left relativity, they needed somebody to fill the role as basically you know, the product manager, A&R guy for the new AF record for One Voice. And they were like, yeah, you know how to do all this shit. So congratulations, you're hired. And I think my salary was like $16,000 a year when they first hired me. Um, and that let me do a lot of other things. So that was my entree into the music business, courtesy of Killing Time. That's so fucking cool. That's like... That goes along with so many different people we've had on the show and the way that they've used the things that they learned outside of the business world through hardcore and leveraged it into like a real position. Now, we got to go over how you feel now as we're, I mean, you're talking about the one voice ever. As the the 80s close out and we get into the early 90s, the hardcore in New York gets very metallicized after it kind of ran its course of so many different, you know, uh, variations of the straight edge bands and it, how do you feel as an old metal kid who shaved his head now seeing like Roger and them grow their hair out and like the metal stuff being stuffed that so many hardcore people start taking on but if you look at what I was doing with Blackout in the early 90s I also kind of departed from that like if you look at what Blackout was for the first like eight records like even after the business comp that I did Blackout number nine and just can't hate enough. Like, yes, I still did. Thanks for nothing. And I still, you know, did kill, you know, killing time and the Iceman. 
but I had started an indie rock label. I had moved yeah. to New York City. I had moved to the friggin', you know, hedonistic playground that was the Lower East Side in the early 90s. Like, I was sitting there seeing bands like, you know, Steve Martin lived in actually in the same building as I did, and we became good friends. And he was starting to do Bad Religion and Helmet PR from his bedroom, living with Armand from Sick of It All. Me, him, and Armand would watch friggin' Star Trek The Next Generation every Monday night, like religion. Um, and, you know, we had this community of people, John Stanier from Helmet. Like, we became kind of entrenched in, like, the culture of the Lower East Side as it was back then. And that included, like, a lot of the burgeoning indie rock bands because it just became this, like, it was just, it was, an inc it was incredible, but it was very different than what was happening from a lot of the other scenes. Like, I had, you know, yes, I still consider myself a hardcore kid um, in many ways, but, like, I was enjoying so many other things. Like, I was becoming way more diverse in my musical taste. Like, I put out... You know, I started that label Engine Records in 1992. Engine Records put out like a singer songwriter from North Carolina. I put out the bass player from Sugar's record, uh, Dave Barbie. I put out a Guided by Voices EP, which was the Village Voice number one EP, um, you know, in that because, you know, um, uh, Village Voices number one EP for like 92 or 93 or something like that. I did a New Bomb Turks, you know, record, which is kind of like, you know, a, a junk punk record from, yeah. you know, like, but all these things sold and they sold pretty well. And even on Blackout, I started putting out bands like the Goops, right? Who were yeah. Don Hills, to like drag queen rock bands. Like, yeah, and your Turbo ACs. Yeah, you had a lot of diversity. Yeah. I, did a, I did a lot of different stuff because my friend group expanded because it just did. You know, there were clubs like Coney Island High that was equal parts punk rock as well as friggin' being hardcore, right? It was, you know, there were bars like No Tell Motel, which was kind of like my home away from home, where like you had all of these crazy people gathering. It was this, it was a, it was a decadent rock and roll fucking circus down there for a number of years. And I loved every goddamn second of it. And well, it's just different than how hardcore sprung up because that's when Jersey hardcore started springing up, Right. But I was in the city living that life, you know, and meanwhile, like I always call it like the big oak tree left its seeds fucking all around the tri-state area. And then Long Island started growing its own scene and, you know, Jersey started growing its own scene. And even like, you know, the scenes in like various parts of PA started growing like it was just this different. It was just this different thing because of the way New York evolved as a music culture. And. You know, even, you know, it was the same reason why, you know, you have Gorilla Biscuits, then you have Quicksand, right? Where you have, you have Burn and you have Orange 9mm, right? It, it's that continuum of sound where musicians perpetually change and push their envelope. I was kind of doing the same thing with myself as a label. Like, I didn't just want to be like Joe Mosh, right, for every part of Blackout. Like, there was so much cool fucking music that I wanted to put out. That although I did consider myself still, you know, hardcore at my heart, I saw all these, all of these other genres almost as branches of that same family tree. And that's like kind of where I started, like, you know, not, not considering, I, I wasn't so steadfast in like, it's not, it's New York hardcore, it's nothing. Right. And then the Goops went on tour with Rancid. I met the guys in Rancid. I've become like, you know, friends with Lars. Lars produced the powerhouse record for me in 97, 98, whenever I forgot when we was recorded, you know, um, 
you know, I got to be friends with Eric from Redemption 87, you know, you yeah, know, all these awesome. things. And it just, this whole network just perpetually grows of like who, you know, and what your attitude is and who you meet at a California show and these serendipitous meetings and hangouts and like, you know, getting stuck on the side of the road with some, some people that you never thought you'd be stuck on the side of the road with, you know, it's, it's, it's great. And then, you know, I had my second rebirth when the label, you know, got a, got a major label deal and, you know, completely in parallel, I did the H2O record, which fucking exploded. Let me, uh, let's, let's backtrack. Cause my question, I mean, this lays out a great, uh, kind of viewpoint that you have, but I was saying more or less like looking, cause you worked at relativity. They also had combat and they were focusing obviously with, a, with AF and one voice, I guess now that we're talking about uh, the immersion of indie rock and kind of how the second generation hardcore people kind of shifted their, their sounds into the things you were, uh, you were seeing all this. What do you think, what do you think was the tipping point for you? Was it just seeing that four or five year switch and just being wrapped up in seeing things change and be excited about something new or was the New York hardcore with, uh, you know, some people have cited violence and the, and the CV shows, where was, where was your head and heart well, all when of, you all started of above? Okay. Right. Can you lay that time out? Like, can you lay that time frame? Like, uh, like, like the late 88, 89, 90 and how it shifted and where you were at in your head with it. In my head, like I moved to the city in 91, 90, 91, when I started, when I actually started earning money from rel- relativity, such as it was. And, like it was, you know, and by that time, you know, the scene was shows were getting shut down fucking in New York left and right for fucking like violence. Right. A lot of the bands had become kind of, you know, a lot of the, the music had become literally very much the same. Right. And, you know, you know, I mean, you know, I just like the, the next wave of bands were not people I was actually close to as a human. Like, I didn't know them. They weren't the same kind of friends as, like, Carl or Don or Jeff or Steve Murphy from Uppercut or the Uppercut guys or even Paul and Newman. Like, these were people that were kind of like, if it was I was going to do a deal with these kind of bands, it was going to be transactional, less so than it was going to be personal. And I kind of didn't like that. So I, I didn't want to really have that kind of vision nor become kind of just stamping it out. Right. I didn't want to just say, like, I'll do this record. I'm going to make the money from it. I'm going to do this record. I'm going to make the money from it. Because then profit never necessarily, again, although I'm a business school person and I think about that for my job, I don't think about that for blackout. Right. And so that mental disconnect led me to say, like, I'm going to do indie rock because, you know, I'm, you know, number one is there's more girls at shows. And I would definitely rather fucking be freaking hanging out with like cute, nerdy indie rock girls than literally like standing between dudes fucking throwing punches at each other all the time. Right. And because that's what it turned into. Like Anthony from Killing Time, I said this a couple of times, but Anthony from Killing Time used to joke, goes, I went to a fight and a hardcore show happened. Right. And that's the way it kind of turned out to be. So it was a little bit violence, it was a little bit cultural. It was a little bit of me kind of just getting bored of the same old. It was me looking at the homogenized nature of the scene. Not saying I didn't still love sheer terror. Not selling, I, saying I wouldn't go to a matinee here and there. But I had to have something that was in my heart to go attend those shows. 
Killing Time had to be playing or AF had to be playing or Sick of It All had to be playing or, you know, one of the bands that I had known during, you know, kind of that earlier period had to be playing or I would go on the road all the time. I would, you know, Killing Time and Vision and those guys would play shows. Sheer Terror and Killing Time would still go to Boston and play shows. All that shit I still, all that shit I still did. But I still had this large piece of me that was now kind of in a different larval stage of growth, whatever that is, you know? Did you go on that tour with Vision and Killing Time? Or no, were you stayed home with the label? No, no, no. I, I, I've toured a couple of times. I toured with the Goops and Rancid going around the country. Um, I went on tour with Kill Your Idols. Like, and this is like national tours, like driving. Yeah. Um, I went on, you know, epic, you know, multi-day road trips. I don't ever think Killing Time really ever did a, like a giant tour per se, but I went on no, they many, went to, many a multi-day they went road to, trip with those guys. They went to Florida or something with Vision, and that was a tour, Tim Boer book. So I was like, oh, that'd be so cool if you were on the tour that Tim Boer booked because he talked oh, about it on the show. yeah. I mean, and Tim was their first agent. Like, Tim was – I remember talking yeah. to Tim, like, early on when Carl was in his apartment on Grand Street – or not Grand Street. He was on Forsyth, I guess. And, like, yeah, Tim was, like, this new kid, and he was just, like, fresh out of everything. And uh, and uh, he was – he, like, booked shows for Killing Time. And now he's, like, yeah. you know, open to the stars. It's kind of funny. Yeah, it's, like, a great – and, like, I was hoping that you're, like, yeah, I did that show because it would be another tie-in with one of our four, uh, former guests. So as you're tied into this music business and you're seeing the uh, the burgeoning indie rock – and. You and I think the exact same way. And I, and this is a huge reason why I had Norm Brandon on the show is hardcore is at the core of so many of these like subculture branches. And it's like, it all has its roots to the very beginning, but I, I truly do believe exactly. What it's a branch off the same tree and we all have roots. Right. But I have to, I have to wonder you seeing the business side and being friends with sick of it all, being friends with sheer terror. You had a, was there a part of you that, saw before some of the other bands saw that the music business side of things wasn't going to work out for some of the New York hardcore bands the way they'd hoped? Well, you know, you gotta, I mean, like, you know, I mean, speaking from, you know, my experience with a lot of bands, a lot of bands, you know, hardcore bands play the music because of passion. Not many of them are careerist. And, you know, while if you look at kind of the difference between like California hardcore and New York hardcore, you almost have to look at it as a sense of privilege, right? Because California bands, a lot of them come from suburban homes, like I did, so I can't say that I'm not privileged either, right? They come from places where they could buy a van and park it cheaply. They could practice in their parents' house. They could do all these things to grow. And they probably all were in school. They probably, most, a lot of people graduated. Yes, probably, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't really know the intricacies of like the Keith Morris story, and certainly Darby Crash was not, you know, a Rhodes Scholar or anything like that, but he was influential. But like a lot of the bands, like you know, from what I what I believe is that bands like Bad Religion, you know, came from like middle class households, whereas New York hardcore bands came from a very different place, and you know, they were always scraping money together, and they were coming from a place of being real street kids, a lot, especially the early ones. And New York is an expensive fucking place to live. Like it's a hell of an expensive place to have a band. You didn't have a practice space in your parents' house unless you were from, you know, Katona or Yonkers or wherever, you know, you had to freaking pay for giant studios for an hour. And, you know, everybody was probably doing table waiting jobs, 
right? If they had jobs at all and scraping all that money together, you know, you're going to buy cigarettes. You're going to freaking do this. Their equipment, they weren't, they couldn't buy equipment. They didn't get, you know, Charvel's for Christmas. Right. So it was a very different thing. So living hand to mouth and having access to kind of be a little bit more privileged, you know, enabled kind of the freedom for a lot of California bands to probably look more at the ability for them to grow a career. Whereas New York bands were always living so hand to mouth that they probably didn't necessarily have that all the time. And it was a little bit more short sighted because people were again, living hand to mouth. It wasn't kind of like having an epic vision of what it does. You know, New York in, in that sense is almost more pure because it's simply about anger and emotion and, you know, and, you know, business wise, hardcore and the, the actual music business is a very tough blend. It just is. I mean, it is for no, any artist because I work with a lot of like street level hip hop now at my regular job and like it's the same thing. Right. So, you know, how to do things methodically and plan marketing plans and do things the way you need to do it is like no bands want to get involved in the nitty gritty. They don't care about the work. They want to play shows. They want to fuck. They want to drink. They want to go out and do stuff like that. Like they don't they're not interested in doing like, you know, 50 calls to retailers to make buddies like they're not interested in that. Huh. You know, now, I know that I know that you guys were really heavily influenced by hip hop way early on and Carl brought that up but by the time you were working in the business through relativity you had to have seen the difference between the hip hop side of things and it's market growth versus the hardcore side where you're taught about that thing where you couldn't get some of these bands further right well don't forget the only thing that the hip hop difference is that it's both it, they're both street level music one is slightly more suburban Right. In its uh, in its sensibilities, save for like, you know, the core of New York hardcore, which was a, an urban phenomena. But like. Hardcore always apologized for making money. Fugazi charges five dollars for a show. Right. If a matinee was over five dollars, you'd be a sellout. Sick of it all signs to a, an independent label and they're friggin they're they're friggin nailed to a cross because they signed to what people perceive to be a fucking major label. Right. Whereas hip hop, like making money is part of the freaking program, man. And people in hardcore apologize for paying their rent with playing music. Whereas people in hip hop are like, yeah, I pay my rent from fucking playing music. And it, that's the decided difference. Because ostensibly, you know, I was introduced to hip hop primarily by a friend of mine. I, I was a stock boy at the Wiz, um, you know, over the winters when I was in high school. And my friend Drew would make me mixtapes of like the audio two and cool Modi and introduce me to like street level hip hop and all sorts of like crazy shit that was happening. I built my first, like, you know, the, you know, the BDP stuff, um, you know, and he introduced me, but like ostensibly the self-empowerment lyrics and a lot of things about kind of rising above are very parallel, especially in early hip hop that they were on hardcore. It's just that difference of apologizing for making money versus, you know, saying it's cool that I can pay my rent with my with with my stuff with my with my art maybe I'm wrong now you, you know no 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 that's an amazing point to make and 
I love when I have someone like you on a show and it changes my perspective and adds a wider viewpoint because something that's going to stay with me in conversations going forward now. So you're working at Relativity and you have still the love for hardcore because obviously you came out with the Iceman record. You still are active, working, and learning. So what comes first? Do you ask or does someone say, hey, you have this label? Like, How did how did you even get in bed to get that um, to deal working out to where you could do the H2O and the stuff that would come later? Like, where was that? Where was that coming from? Is that just the connections and the serendipity? Yeah, again? I mean, again, it's all just about like networking and making friends and like trying to be cool with people. And it wasn't about like I wasn't it wasn't designed on being this like sociopathic kind of like engine social engineering experiment where I decided to make friends with people. I just wanted to be cool and I'm a true believer in music, right? No matter what genre you play, music has the ability to like make a bad day better. And so I kind of realized that as like the cornerstone of my career is that I may think this music is fucking garbage, but some kid loves it. And that kid could be me, right? Could be that angry little fucking diseased child fucking in his room fucking drawing. And that fucking Blondie record takes him away from all of the fucking bullshit. Maybe that happens with some fucking trap metal record that I think is garbage, but that's, you know, to each his own and the eye of the beholder. But, you know, with respect to the career aspect of it, or kind of like the, the, the major label deal or H2O, um, H2O was friends. Like I did a band called Outcrowd, right? That was yeah. Toby's brother, Todd. And I would hang out again in Hoboken with Todd all the time. And I believed in Outcrowd. I thought that their songwriting was great. I thought that they were kind of like, you know, the next step in like what Dad Nasty could be, right? And if you listen to a lot of those records, you'll see that like heavy friggin' like post-hardcore DC influence in what their sound was. And, you know, their records did okay. Um, nobody kind of knew where to place them because, you know, the perception in the market is that Blackout was about moshing. And, you know... And I did an American Standard record, which was like that American Standard record is definitely, you know, also kind of like falls from the Swiss dag tree. It doesn't really fall from the fall from the New York City kind of like moshy thing. And I started hanging out with with those guys, too, because Todd worked in New York City to work the New York City bars. And we just got to be friends. And, you know, he lived with Toby in Jersey and Toby and I got to be friendly. So I was just in the mix to put out that H2O record. And, you know. I'm, you know, there were a bunch of people who kind of put their thing in and, you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to, to work with those guys on that first record. It was really, you know, right place, right time, serendipity and friendships. Yeah. Cause Toby was sick of it all guy. Obviously you were taught, you were, you, you mentioned the goops and they were had a tie to rancid. So yeah, it was kind of like a big congealing group of friends. Well, yeah, and Toby was also sick of it all as Rudy, so I was friends with the yeah. guys sick of it all. I had met Toby early on when he had like dreadlocks and one tattoo at the Wust Hall in DC when the Iceman played with Outburst. So like like I knew him tangentially even as a child. You know, when he was like a little tiny kid going to shows. You know, you know, so you know it was just this continuum of people that the more you travel, the more people you meet, the more good things happen. And that was just kind of the H2O record was the result of that. Now, in thinking about this, obviously you did I2 and I, um, or I and I, the uh, Boston band. But when you do the Iceman, rest in peace, obviously to me, 
I, I got to know Carl later on, but a lot of people would tell me, dude, you have to see your Iceman, Iceman, Iceman. Now people, thank God you put it on Spotify and it's out, but like people are now realizing how good of a fucking record that was. But what was that like to put that out then with the scene being so scattered and different? Was there still like a market? Was there still people around? Or was I just it so love scattered? that band. Like I just love that band because like it was one of those bands that they were like an enigma. Like because, you know, Marco, like the way that Marco, you know, kind of grew up, you know, the, the way that um, um, Noah grew up in kind of West Beth and like the New York city arts and jazz communities and, and like high end art worlds. Cause their families are all like prestigious artists and music and jazz. Like, you know, they were artists and they wanted music the way that they wanted to play it. And, you know, Marco, you know, idea wise was far more metal in a lot of ways than, than that. And, you know, you know, Marco's brother Gabby played in, you know, one of the iterations of the Cro-Mags. Um, but like, you know, they were heavily influenced and then Hagami Mackey and the band gave that, gave that, gave that kind of Cro-Magnon feel to it. And then having Carl in the front, who was, you know, Carl the Mosher, you know, enabled them to kind of blend that kind of high end musicianship on that side with kind of, you know, Carl delivering the fucking, you know, um, you know, harsh truth. No, I feel like that's just one of them records that I just, I love and was early enough to be told about it. So it's something that like, I know back and forth upside down, you know, and I've always wondered if it was just that people weren't paying attention to them by that point. I mean, the band, because of Carl, Carl was around a long time. People knew Carl, like you said, but I always wanted to know what your thoughts were on that record because they didn't play a lot. They were never going to tour. But there had to be a document of what they did, and I think those yeah. for, for those those tracks, you know, um, are exemplary of the band at that time, and it's a great snapshot of who they were. Yeah, they were part of. Um, I thought I thought they came up with Richie because Richie was kind of a similar thing. He went to an art school and his, his mother was a composer. So I thought they were kind of like all friendly, but I just had to ask you because that's like one of them records. Now I see got to Spotify and you see young kids now and they're fucking finally celebrating it. And it's just one of the coolest fucking records, man. Yeah. I actually don't remember how I connected with them. I think they just like, I think one day I just saw Marco and I asked him flat out. I said, dude, I put out records. You haven't put out a record. Like, why don't you just do a fucking record? He was like, and basically it was like, well, let me talk to Noah. And we had like a couple of like, you know, lunch meetings, you yeah. know, kind of thing, like, you know, in the city. I mean, you know, nothing opulent. It was probably like Veselka or some shit. And, you know, I, I think we just kind of talked and, and, you know, they decided to release it. You know, they had a lot more material that they didn't, that they never released, but, you know, you know, I, you know, part of them was thinking maybe that they were going to get a bigger record deal at some point, but I was happy to do what I did. And, you know, I wasn't going to look a, a gift horse or a gift ice man in the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> in, uh, in the dynamo era, uh, Carl would book a couple of my friends bands at CBs and we would hang out and he'd say, I gotta get you some of this, some of the ice man stuff we never put out. Cause I would punish him with ice man questions. I think he kind of like liked it. He gave us a bunch of Dynamo seven inches, but he's like, I, I got tapes of the stuff we just never put out. And I'm like, holy fuck! Like you know, it's like that that holy grail you always want to hear. 
Now, I would always love to, I would love to hear an off the board CB's tape from them, honestly, during like that 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 era when they would play. Oh. That's all good. <laughs> Pitbulls, you can't Yeah. You can't, you, you can't live with them and you sure as hell can't live without them, so. Ah. Uh, yeah, no, um thinking about the way that Blackout goes with its releases, I, I I also see that even though Sheer Terror would go off and they do Maze, you guys would put out Thanks for Nothing after the Ugly and Proud CD would kind of fall apart. Yep. And then even though Killing Time was on an effect, you guys would do some 7 Inches. So you were still able to do releases even though these bands were committed to other labels. And well, I mean... Yeah, I mean, Killing Time had ultimately been dropped by Relativity by the time I did Happy Hour because they weren't touring. Um, and it was just kind of the thing where it's like, you know, relatively spent a decent amount of money on promoting the killing time record. And then, you know, one of the members of the band decided they didn't actually want to tour and they were going to remain local and go to school and kind of like derailed a lot of the band's plans for like growing themselves. And so, you know, you know, with respect to, you know, how the the other records came about like sheer terror like i was you know i was kind of functioning as their half-assed manager even during that time with maze because every time they had like a fight with zoran Dusik, the guy that ran maze they would always call me to intercede it's not like i made a freaking penny from it because i didn't i was just their friend and still helping them out but you know and it's again not about money it's just one of those things where people think oh you're the manager yeah, yeah no let's let's just go from the the assumption that all of this is done for no money and then you know and then you know basically i was frustrated because the label seemed to have folded like literally the guy closed his office disappeared from the face of the earth the record didn't come out for like 8 months nobody knew where the fuck um ugly and proud was so I was just like, well, I guess you guys can just record for me again and we'll do this friggin' record that has half the songs on it that the other one did. Cool? Okay. And we just did it. And then Maze came back around and they were going to sue me and I was going to sue them. And it was just like this ridiculous, like, patty cake of lawyers. Um, and, you know, Paul obviously yelling and screaming, you know, whatever it is, and me trying to deal with things like, you know, with the attorneys. and. Eventually, it just worked out. I think, you know, basically what happened was Maze got the record free and clear. No royalties, no nothing. They just got to put it out and not pay the band a fucking stitch. Wow. And um, I continued on with Sheer Terror to do, you know, Thanks for Nothing. Um, you know, uh, you know the, the No Grounds for Pity original, you know, kind of demo CD. Um, you know, That's Old New Bar EP. Yeah, Bard and Blue, and then eventually work with them, and you know, work with them when they signed to uh, MCA through my deal with MCA. You know, so were you the fun and fun and a disaster at the same time? Were you the were you the impetus to start getting into your hardcore MCA? Like, how did MCA come into the into the picture, and like, what was your role with that? Um, so I used to work at Relativity again, all about friendships and who you know, right? With a guy named Hans Haydell. Hans Haydout also used to be the the guy who was Crazy Eddie's heavy metal Hans way back when I was 14 years old and ran the friggin' metal section at Crazy Eddie's, right, on Central Avenue that I talked about earlier. And he lived 
near my family in Westchester. And when I first started at Relativity, I was still living at my parents' house. And his car would blow out or get some horrible shit happen. So I would basically go out of my way to pick Hans up, like, you know, going from Yonkers to White Plains, you know, to pick Hans up at his house and drive him back to Hollis, Queens. So it was probably like, you know, a hundred and, you know, it was probably like a two, like a, almost a two hour round trip to get to work on time when I had, when I would pick him up. So we had ample time to chat, chat and get to know each other. And Hans's job back then was he was the liaison um, at the company to MTV. So he was the one who was booking all like the Ugly Kid Joe videos on MTV. He was getting yeah. all the alternative records on MTV. He was like doing all that stuff as well as doing, you know, other things. But he was like the video, like the video promo guy. Eventually, he got a job working for Interscope as an A&R person. And then got hired by MCA as an A&R guy. And he had always loved the shit that I was putting out. He loved OutCrowd. You know, he loved a lot of the bands and thought they had commercial potential. He understood my acumen in the business very well because we had worked together. And eventually he's like, you know, and that was the day when, you know, every indie was getting sucked up by a fucking major too, right? So we did a little deal, you know, and comparatively speaking to other deals, it was fucking nothing. Um... And I'll tell you exactly what the deal was. We got $150,000 a year for three years to spend on whatever we wanted to. They gave us an office space at 1755 Broadway, which was literally and actually 100% a broom closet that they had cleared out that me, Carl, because Carl worked for me at the time, Joey I, um, who was my like sales guy, retail guy, and Tim Shaw from Ensign literally had four desks so fucking close together, like I think I could friggin' hear everybody's heartbeat because they stuck wow. up in a broom closet. Um, but they gave us an office at 1755 Broadway at MCA. And we were like the blue, because we had like punk rock hair back then too, because it was like, you know, mid 90s. So like we were like, you know, Tim had blue hair. I had bright red hair. Like, you know, Joey was like coming in with, you know, his giant fucking chain wallet. Um, John Franco from Dead City was the guy that worked in yeah. like picking, packing and shipping in kind of like our little like one, like even smaller, like bathroom size warehouse closet that they gave us, like putting like boxes together and doing all the shipping for us. Um, but it was fun. Like I, I learned a lot about major label politics. And basically when I got the deal, Sheer Terror said, get us a deal. We're breaking up. I mean, they gave me kind of an ultimatum. So Hans decided that we were going to try it. And it was, you know, to make a very long and insane story short, not the right band, not the right time, not the right recording, not the right record. It's a great record now. I love it. Head yeah. girl, which I don't like, but. Um, That's such a dark, like almost like typo negative, just drudgy, like evil like it sounds like someone got really drunk and just wrote a song that was like they actually out. that's why evil. they did it because they needed to make the record longer than a certain period and they didn't have song that's exactly why that song is the way it is bing 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 you hit it on the head <laughs> wow mind blown um but yeah man like that sheer terror record was a thing and unfortunately it you know colored my relationship with mca because it was you know, and the band members weren't getting along. Like Newman is the sort of unstoppable force of organization 
and Paul is pure chaos. And yeah. it wasn't sustainable. And, you know, they wanted to be hardcore, but you couldn't be on a major label and still not kind of play the game a little bit. And Paul was unwilling to play the game. And I understand why he wasn't, because he remains true to himself, and that's a very admirable quality. But at some point, like, you know, you know, if you want it to be your job, there's certain things that you have to do. And, you know, it just the relationship decayed with MCA. I tried to hold it together as best as I could and, you know, kind of like bridge the gaps, you know. Um, but then, you know, one day the nail, the nail was in the coffin because Newman and, and Pat and Chicky literally just left. They couldn't deal with the stress anymore. And, wow. you know, Paul continued on with a bunch of other people for a while. But like, yeah, that was the the first first that, you know, and then and then after a tour of Europe. No, Chicky was still in the band. Sorry, I apologize. And then after one tour of Europe where things weren't going the way they wanted to, that's when they actually decided to call Sheer Terror quits the first time. And that's when they had that long gap in their career, kind of late 90s. Early yeah, 97 was her last shows. Yeah, I seen them on the Napalm Death Tour, and then they canceled the Overkill Tour. Yep. Well, they got, yeah, it, was, it wasn't going to work. Ken Creedy was going to try to help them out, and it just didn't work out. Um. And so, what other signings did you have alongside that? Was that like it for that? Well, you know, it else came out very much in parallel to that. I did the de- the first Dead Guy record, the the EPs. Oh, together. yeah, the workout. Right. The workout. So I did that on Engine. I did that on my uh, my alt rock label because they didn't want to be on Blackout. I did Sweet yeah. Diesel. Turbo ACs came out at that time. I did the punk rock jukebox compilations. So yeah, yeah, like, yeah. you know, like all those, and those were fucking hella fun to put out. Um, so. You know, it was great. And that's where I got like my extended family of bands. Like, you know, people forget that like Lars, Tim, Marky Ramon and Newman from Sheer Terror, Terror, Newman and Chicky from Sheer Terror played as No Brain on that compilation. That I'm Against It song is Tim from Rancid, Lars from Rancid, Marky Ramon, because I put out a Marky Ramon record in Europe through my European office. And because Newman was off of her friends with Marky. And, uh, and that's the first song on, on the punk rock jukebox. And then like the swing and others were on it because I met them through Lars when I hung out in San Francisco, after I went to go fly out to hang out with Lars in San Francisco a little bit. So it was like all this, you know, just kind of thing. And then the AFI guys were like friends. So I got to be friends with, with, with those guys, you know, and that led to the friendship with like Redemption 87, you know, and then soon thereafter, after the MCA deal went friggin' belly up. You know, I put out the Kill Your Idols records. Now, did you shift into a did you shift into a different job in another label? What did you do for your uh, business? Like for what did you do? I was still running Blackout um, full time from the time MCA was there until until probably two thousand three, two thousand four. Um, I was doing blackout exclusively. I was going on tour with the bands. I was, you know, and it was eking out enough money to like continue to pay a small team. And then I tried, you know, and we were doing distro for other labels too. So, you know, Joey, I was selling to direct to retail. And so, you know, we had some distro money. We had, you know, H2O was continually continuing to sell. Punk Rock Jukebox was still continuing to sell. You know, so 
you know, we had income coming in. I had license deals for H2O from Japan and from some other places that we got were getting money from. So the everything was pretty cool, and I could I could pay the people that work for me, and I paid everybody the same as I paid myself. Um, so it was punk rock welfare for everyone. Um, and we all worked, and then we went from the offices of MCA to the basement of a house I rented in Westchester to a tiny warehouse in Yonkers. Um, so I kind of came back home um, towards the end of 99. And then I, I was supposed to do a business deal with somebody who was promised to put in investment money. And I got the office in Yonkers predicated upon them making an investment in the distribution side. And after about a year and a half of me paying blackout money to sustain the rent that I didn't need to pay on this company to the tune of about $150,000, um, I realized they were never going to make the investment. This was a friggin' pig in a poke and I needed to shut it all down. And then one day I just basically walked into the warehouse and said, guys, I got Joey I a job somewhere else. Vinny, the other sales guy that worked for me, he got a job at a trucking company. And, you know, um, Franco got a, you know, got a warehouse job elsewhere. And I just remember the last day of that, that, you know, ground zero distribution, which was what called it, you know, I basically boxed up all the records to return them to all the labels. I wrote as many checks as I could out of the bank account to pay off everybody. And I paid everybody except myself. Um, to like clear out all the accounts. And then I basically walked out of the office and left the keys there and told the landlord, you can sell everything and hear of it. And 50 Pitney Bowes is probably going to come and try to do collections on the, on the, on the machine that I just paid like $2,000 in postage on that I have no intention of paying for. And I basically just walked out of the office and said, fuck this. And, uh, and, uh, you know, the label continued bobbing along for another couple of years, but that loss of that money killed the label. It killed it. Holy fuck. I never knew that. I knew um, at that time frame, I was working in a very similar scenario to what you were talking about between having other jobs that would help Met out and sit in his basement at Cord Magazine and stuff envelopes. And he was showing me how he does his compilations. And I was watching him having to rob Peter to pay Paul just to keep the things going on. And actually, I remember... Paul Bear specifically saying when H2O was getting ready to sign the MCA H2O go, uh, go deal, one of my jobs for Cord Magazine was to call up. And I would like to uh, Mets directory and I would call people and say, hey, uh, what do you think about this? And Paulie said, why the fuck wouldn't they listen to me? They call it Music Cemetery of America for a fucking reason. But like once every oh, week Hans I was getting up. So Hans loved them for a long time. And Han yeah. did have some success. Like he, he was a Shaggy's A&R guy. He signed that band that did that song Closing Time, that huge hit. So it's not oh, like MCA was incapable of doing records. They were incapable of doing fucking hardcore. Well, did oh, you see that? Oh, did you see that? That's what I was getting to. Did you see that early on after, because I mean, H2O record, I mean, they had a quick seven inch. It felt like they just ignited and blew up. But like, did you see from a professional side that there was going to be 
a level that they could attain and it couldn't go higher? Like, what was your perspective oh, after I mean, seeing this self-titled and seeing what they were going after oh, that? I mean, I would have loved to do subsequent H2O records. I had them signed for one record. And, you know, after you have success on a small label that doesn't have a lot of resources, where are you going to go? And Epitaph comes along. I can't compete with that. I try. You know, but, you know, you know, people have to live their own lives. And as a kid, no. I got butthurt by it. And as an adult, I totally understand their reasons. What I was saying is, did you think, so you're saying that you were a little butthurt, but I was getting into, did you think that H2O had the opportunity to have like larger commercial success? I, I do think so, given kind of the nature of what was popular at the time, right? They could have had larger commercial success. You know, I mean, should they maybe have stayed on Epitaph for a couple records and kind of tried to follow that route and done kind of like the the Pennywise thing, you know, sure. But, you know, you know, you know, the five-year plan, you know, was to, you know, be successful because, you know, everybody wants to pay, you know, at least those guys were never shy about wanting to pay their rent from music and living their art, you know, you know, to them, not selling out means not selling out your ideas, not being able to pay your rent from playing your music. At least that's, well, I think that's an- Toby may say something different, but that's my impression of what that means to to me and to them. And I've heard, I've heard incarnations of that from guys like Mabel and sick of it all. Like, yo, selling out is, this is what the fuck we do. We take this, do we take this all the way and you have to respect it. So a lot of times we had on, we had a couple of times we had on the podcast actually where there's bad business deals and there's this moment where you're uh, of uncertainty. How quick did you pivot or what were your thought process when you got to the realization, like I got to do something different or where were you like, where was your, your brain going to where you were going to work and do after this whole thing fell apart? So, you know, I, 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 I still tried to do some deals. I had a couple of partners, like, you know, like two, 2000, I was out of MCA and I put out the Kill Your Idols record and I was working out of a, a warehouse in Hoboken that my friends and I all lived in. Right. And, you know, they had bought previous partners out. They put a tiny bit of money in. It wasn't a lot, but it was enough to kind of like keep the label on life support and get the Kill Your Idols records out and kind of start that relationship. But, you know, still cash poor, cash poor, cash poor. You know, I wasn't paying myself a salary. I was paying basically like bills of myself from blackout. I was living for free. I was basically living like, I mean, dude, we had a 2000 foot square warehouse with a shower and a bathroom and a mini recording studio that the, their friend, the mixer would use. And then we had five couches and a giant screen TV and all of us just lived on the couches. Like, and that's what I did in 2000. I lived literally on a fucking couch with my dog. Like I didn't pay rent. I didn't have, you know, like I had nothing right. Except I was putting out records. I still was able to buy Kill Your Idols a van to put them on the road you know, I was able to kind of like still kind of eke out like paying bills, but it was a horrible life for somebody who was going to be an adult or should have been an adult probably by that point a little bit. And I still continued to do it because I couldn't let it go. It was a part of me, right? It's like cutting off my arm. How do I cut off blackout? What do I do? Who am I? Right? It was so part of my personal identity, my social infrastructure, like whatever it is, it's like, it was like, you know, to, to, to come to that realization that it might not be the right time to stay in there. It was like going to be like severing an arm. So, you know, a year and a half later, I got into a partnership with this recording studio. Um, he bought out 
the existing partners. And the deal was that he was supposed to give me free time at his high-end recording studio called Water Music in Hoboken. Um, and my job was to put out the records and he would get equity based on the amount of money that he put in. And eventually he would own a significant part of the label. A couple other friends, Steve from Uppercut, put in a couple of bucks to kind of keep the label going as well. Um, Bill from American Standard put in a couple of bucks to keep the label going as well. Again, I didn't take shit for a salary, nothing. Um, and again, because the recording studio had like spare rooms in places, I lived basically at the recording studio and I was given a room with a cot, an old mixing board and cardboard furniture as my room for that period of time. I lived like a fucking homeless person. I mean, it was literally one step up. Like it was, it was like, I can't even, I can't even grasp like how I managed to fucking make do. Um, and then Billy Milano, who was, you know, his his public persona is very different than his than his Billy Massey persona, and I'm friends with Billy Massey. I'm not I'm not sure that Billy Milano is the is kind of like the the pro wrestler character is like he's he's different than I consider to be Billy Massey. But he took me in. He had an apartment close by, and he's just like just live on my live in my live in my couch, and he would cook for me every day. He would fucking wow. talk about stuff like my girl. Like I was friends with his dogs. Like I would take his dogs for walks. Like I would sleep on the couch with his puppies. Like, like he, he took me in, in a lot of ways and, um, prevented me from committing horrible acts of violence against the studio owner. Um, the woman who became my wife, um, one day there was this thing where crime and stereo was recording yeah. their EP or their LP for me. And, uh, this guy decided arbitrarily cause he was going to fuck with me to just throw them out of the studio arbitrarily. And the band calls me in a lather. And I remember, and Billy will tell you the story if you ever talk to him. I picked up a frying pan from Billy's kitchen and the, the, the apartment he rented was actually in the studio building in the complex. So I was like, that's it. I'm going to kill him. And I picked up a friggin' cast iron fucking frying pan and I took it and I started walking to the talking, walking into the studio and I was pressing the buttons, the keypad buttons to get into the studio. And all of a sudden this, you know, the woman who became my wife basically is like, Billy, go get him. Cause she knew and literally walked up back to me and he bear hugged me and walked me back to his apartment. I was like, just let me, kill him. Just let me fucking hit him once. I was like, that's it. And then so soon thereafter, my partnership with that guy broke up and that's when I quit the label. And that was like 2004 after I put out the fire still burns, which is kind of like a Jersey, um, actually a pretty amazing Jersey band that didn't get the love that they, that they, they should have. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, that was the end of blackout for years. Like I put all my stuff up on iTunes. I didn't touch the label at all. You know, digital was going to do what it did. And the label didn't reemerge until I did the Sheer Terror box set. I mean, I did kind of produce the Sheer Terror live DVD um, and engineered that relationship. But Thorpe put it out. I didn't put it out. Yeah. And um, and then, you know, I got out of phys the physical music business. I only became digital only early on. And then I was lost. I did. I was doing odd computer jobs. I was doing other horrible jobs for people. Like, like I, it was just this horrible thing. And, you know, again, 
Like I was like, how how did how did I go from that to this? What the fuck just happened? And I had nothing, literally nothing. And luckily, again, because of networking and friends, I got hired by this little startup to create, you know, this little music startup. And I got a job in the digital side of the business, learned a lot, was able to network again, got picked up by a ringtone company to be the head of licensing for this ringtone company when ringtones were big in 2008. And then a year later, I got pinched to run all of mobile for Atlantic Records, where, you know, I was basically slinging like, you know, TI live your life ringtones and fucking selling, you know, 10 or $20 million of flow rider low ringtones to the carriers. And that's where I got like involved in global business development, you know, a lot of the metadata operations, a lot of the different things that I do now for a job. I started getting those bones and building the contacts at the major label level, but on the senior executive level. And then, you know, after that, I worked for a trade association for about nine years. And now I have an SVP role at a very large music and currently music and film company um, running a lot of their technology operations. So I've kind of shifted from my love for computers and nerddom into kind of being senior management at this TV, you know, music, but also has a TV uh, division. Um, so it's been a wild fucking ride, dude. And, you know, hardcore led me through all of it, the good, the bad and the fugly, just like and Carl's seen all of it. <laughs> so we kind of begin almost where we end with that whole thing. And that's kind of the that's kind of the ride. Right. And that's how it that's and that's where I am now. I have to ask this because I feel dumb not asking. Did you have to do any college to go and do any of this from that point or no? Everything I just like me drawing, no, like, everything I did, I learned myself. That's, what, exactly, that's yeah. the fucking coolest thing. That's the coolest thing. Doing I mean, job, right. And fucking up and spending my own money and, and losing money when I fucked up and, you know, you know, making a modest amount of money when I was successful. And, you know, that's part of the joy of it, right? I mean, by, by, by all rights, I should have been dead as a kid. So I do what the fuck I want whenever I want. And if people don't like it, eh, that's fine. You can pay me no mind. I, I, I feel like another person would have so much ill will and just sour grapes about the entire thing but i mean you you were still i mean you put out the sheer terror box that which is one of the craziest things um even though <laughs> you remember you're like where'd you get that shirt at i i thought you had had a hand in killing time with the uh when they released their records again in that uh the big box set i didn't um <laughs> and that's why i laughed when you saw the shirt you're like where the fuck that come from i'm like from the box that i got from killing time with the clock <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so, all the shit that I did as a kid, like, I'm not going to be mercurious. I, I'm not mercurial when it comes, like, I gave these people these things for a reason when they were a kid. Yeah. Like, I, I don't have, you know, I didn't copyright it. It's not my intellectual property. The fact that these designs still live on 30 years later for shit that I did in 15 minutes is actually a kick. So as long as I get a fucking copy or can get a fucking copy of the breakdown skateboard or the friggin', you know, um, you know, the, the shit that people did, you know you know, or, you know, have my illustration of the raw deal dealer shirt, 
you know, which I did, the, you know, the card, the Joker, yeah. the card guy, you know, on the cover of that LP, that's reward enough. Like, what am I going to do? Get paid? Like, what's, what, you know, what, what's, you know, get paid fucking $300 for licensing them a piece of artwork? Please. Like, that's just not where I am right now. Now, do you feel like at any time as you're going up and down in, in this, this rise to the fall, that it was the things that you didn't see coming or was it just the nature of the business was always about fucking and screwing someone over and you were just constantly on that end. Like, where do you think you kept, you kept ending up on the side of being fucked? Like now looking at back on it and knowing everything you know about the business side. Naivete, trusting people, um, I think was a big thing, but it's also taking chances. Most people don't take chances. I would throw a fucking Hail Mary pass just for the hell of it. Right. Like, sure. That sounds fine. Let's just fucking try it. It's an adventure. Right. And, you know, like I said, like I wasn't spending somebody else's money. Like when shit went awry, it bit me on the ass. So I've picked all my losses just as much as I picked my wins. Well, I don't, I always wonder when someone has the kind of not, I mean, just thinking about you sitting, when you said cardboard furniture, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like legitimately just a couple boxes to put things on top of. And then the thing that now you're an SVP, I wonder if you understand the cultural value that can't be measured in any kind of money in your pocket for the, the things that you put oh, at your energy mm. to. That's, that is one, one, that is fuck a hundred percent. That's a thousand percent the value that I get from blackout. I don't need to do the label. Like I want to do a label. I like making the fucking donuts. Like picking the colored vinyl for the Redemption 87 and talking to Eric about it is fucking fun. Talking to Gary about like what pin I'm going to put in the Kill Your Idols fucking, you know, three reissues that I'm doing is fun. Like I don't do that for like any kind of reward other than like being able to like talk shit with dudes I've known for 30 years. Like if this was about money, I would fucking not do it at all. This is pure. This is this is about love that blissfully doesn't cost me any money. But in the no, end, it's, fucking, it's it's like it's 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 you know, I'm not gonna fucking you know put in a pool based on blackout. No, what I meant is like even though things were bad for you at one point, what you did, what you did that whole time. I mean, I didn't realize that at the time. I was too miserable. Yeah, there had to be a there had to be a time. Was, so as this is all going on, I mean, dude, just to, just to name the bands. I mean, like. New York hardcore is really fucked up in a lot of ways in that there is still, I mean, just listen to the breakdown story. You guys, they were ronkers, so it was hard for them to get a show in the city. Kill Your Idols, I don't think another label from New York would have touched them. But honestly, I'm not only friends with the band, but I watched them play so many times at Bonnet Society, and they were one of the most fun bands in so many different eras. I mean, they're still fun now, and... and it, it takes a special ear to see that there's a quality to them, well, even if they're not LES dudes. And just you do talk about Redemption 87 and Powerhouse. Those are two bands on the West Coast, but clearly have something special. I mean, I'm friends with Powerhouse. Those records were fucking incredible. And I mean, when they came out to play them shows, uh, that just was like, holy fuck. You know, like a, a moment. Like you, you, I was on your mailing list, so if blackout something came to my house, like there's so many little things about blackout records that I think goes deeper and it sucks to hear 
it really fucks me up to think about all the struggle that you went through. I, I have to wonder where, I mean, a, a, weak, a, a weaker person would have killed themselves or a weaker person would have said, fuck hardcore, I don't want nothing to do with it. But it has to be your embedded friendships and your lifelong love. Oh of this. yeah, it's it's it has again, to be. That's exactly the reason. It's like I mean, this is part of my life. It was part of my part of my adolescence. It contributed to, again to like ultimately like where I am now in a good place. I mean, and also don't discount the fact that I've also had therapy, right? Like with my positive outlook, right? I mean, it's like let I will be totally transparent. Like I had tons of anger issues. Um, that I've completely eschewed because I realized that like, I do, I did create records that have a cultural impact. I did make people's lives better. And just because like I had to go through what I went through, it's nothing compared to what other people go through in their life on a daily basis. So like, I'm good, man. Like it's totally, it's cool. Like, I, I, you know, the people that, you know, I might've had fights with as a, as a younger person, you know, you know, I only have a very short list of people that I like to see dead at this point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just know from the from the, the, the interactions I've had, there was a lot of bad things going on with distribution and labels losing money, people not getting paid. And it was a constant cycle that wiped so many things out. And to hear it firsthand and, and to hear the side of the human element side of it, it's absolutely fucking devastating. Oh. But then again... Then again, to see how you could pivot and shift into this job and then, you know, like to be, I mean, it sounds crazy, but like, that's it. You're at the epicenter of one of the most commercial viable things at that time, which is like the fucking ringtones and cell phones. Like yeah. how else in the fucking world does someone get from wanting to draw a fucking record cover to one day do <laughs> it's, it's such a crazy ride. Well, I mean, I'm also a heavy duty nerd. So like, in addition to like the things that I didn't say about my job was I was also building databases the same time I was learning how to, I was learning to code and building databases the same time I was, you know, and working with FileMaker and all the early instances of Mac programs, like super early. Like I was on desktop publishing probably when Quark 1.0 came out, right? So I was always that guy with the computer. I installed the first local area network at Relativity. I built the first local area network at Caroline when I worked at Caroline. I built the, you know, when I was running Earache Records, because I ran the label Earache for a couple of years as well um, during that early phase before MCA. Like, you know, so, you know, like I did, I had so much computer stuff going on in my head that like, that's what led me to the digital side of the business just as much as my music side. Is that I was always, you know, again, introspective, do things by myself, nerdy, living life in my own head shit. Now, when you were working for the labels, obviously we're not talking about blackouts like releases. What were some of your favorite non-blackout, non-engine like label releases that you were involved in or had part in or like, oh, you know, connected one, people with? Friggin' Sleep Holy Mountain. Okay. Fuck. You know, like that fucking that record got me into being fucking and got me into Stoner Rock. Right? And those are that was like a record that I I still listen to and love today and High on Fire is actually signed to the metal imprint of the company that I work for. So, it's like there's a continuum of Matt Pike in my life. Um, you know, on that side. 
um, that probably stands out as being kind of like the pinnacle of that. But all the Eric stuff, man, like the guys from Entombed were fucking cool. I introduced the guys from Entombed to the guys from New Bomb Turks because they were in the office on the same day as the Beastie Boys and the Smashing Pumpkins because we shared the office space with Nasty Little Man. Um, and, uh, and I introduced basically like in that office that day, you know, you know, the idea for, you know, you know, um, what became the helicopters kind of started and new bomb Turks and helicopters actually did a split single because they met in my office. Right. So I would say that entombed guys were fucking great. Um, napalm death guys are fucking the reason why sheer terror went on tour with napalm is because the guy that managed napalm actually ran my uk office for a little bit and when i like i was riding high i had a uk office that put out a bunch of stuff overseas and you know like you know all that all the eric stuff was fucking incredible i really loved putting i really actually you know i really i really liked that era of eric you know bolt thrower um carcass the heartwork record is fucking amazing it's like a cross between like death metal and iron that's the that's the first cd that's the first cd i had the first actual record on cd that i had well wow i love that record fuck i mean those are all records that i'm really proud to say that i had a hand in right and then when you look at atlantic it's like okay yeah sure it's like you know i was part of a team of hundreds of people that you know did a ti record you know, and, you know, with a lot of singles, that first breakout single he did with Rihanna, Live Your Life. Like I was, I was part of a, you know, I was a, a grain of sand on that beach that helped contribute to the, to, to that, to that record. You know, um, these are all things that I can point to as kind of like saying, yeah, that was pretty cool. You know, looking at Flowrider, that song Low, still in kind of people's heads after so many years. Right. And, uh, you know, he was a cool dude. He would come and sit in the office and talk. Right. Good dude. Like, so, you know, I have a lot of fond memories from a lot of the stuff that I did X block out. It's not the same because I wasn't down and dirty and fucking driving across the desert with them or anything. Or like fucking going skinny dipping in the fucking Atlantic like I did with fucking the group. Yeah, and you weren't opening you weren't opening a box and like getting excited every time I yeah, saw it. Yeah, it wasn't the same thing as like opening up where the wild things are. I wonder, um, or even opening up the killing time, like finally seeing the new killing time. Yeah, like, nothing. That fucking method thing when I like, like when I like when you know Drago did the layout for that, I didn't. But like, you know, when I saw like it was worth paying for the super high gloss insert, it was worth paying for the you know printing the black the black on the inside and all the multiple colored sleeves and like the the spatter colored vinyl that works so well with the cover. Like I had as much of a thrill opening that box. And the outburst colored vinyl boxes, as I do where where, where the wild things are. It's like it's like Christmas morning when you're seven, like every time you open one of these boxes. Well, that's what I wanted to get into. Obviously, besides the stuff that we talked about, the method is the the reissue and re-release. And I remember at the time when they were they first put that out. I mean I see Envision and Killing Time at a show in New Brunswick, the Down Under. That's still one of my all-time favorite times seeing Killing Time. Like, like epic moments. And I remember that the Method songs, some people went off for them and some people stood still. But then they were also, some of them songs of Method were also on Unavoidable. Right. Right? 
personal hardcore. And so, you know, like, right, yeah, like there was, there was, so it wasn't a completely brand new record. And yeah, so, there was four out of uh, like what was, songs or something like that that was on Unavoidable was always supposed to be a teaser for the new for the new record. Right, that's ultimately what it was supposed to be. Like almost like the demo was for you know Raw Deal to the album that was Killing Time. So was 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 you know Unavoidable supposed to be almost like the demo for the next generation of Killing Time. I love that record. I mean, it was fun to make. You know, it just came out at a weird time. Like, you know, that came out alongside H2O and when Sheer Terror was at MCA. Yeah, and no, and in fact, I not, have a... People were not ready for that record because, in hindsight, it's a great record. At the time, people were expecting Brightside too, And they were also a little bit friggin' crazy because the Happy Hour 7-inch was such a complete departure from from what Killing Time was. But I yeah, love... Yeah, like, absolutely. Method is great. I, I mean, I 100% stand by that record. Well, I know that the boys are planning to do a whole entire show playing it all the way through. And I feel like if you would have said to me 10 years ago, do you think young kids are going to like the method? I would say, I don't think so. But the generation now that absolutely loves Killing Time, I think that they're way more open-minded to the idea that there's more than one sound from Killing Time. And I see that in just some of the bands that they also like. So I feel like the killing time method has a home in some of these young kids who have not been exposed to it. And so I think it's actually a decent time to put the LP out. I, um, I know that you know this, but like I, from the minute that those guys started getting ready to play shows again, I, I just really wanted to make it my mission to put killing time on this is hardcore as much as possible. Because to me, I love breakdown, but Killing Time is like this foundation. I mean, Matt Hender said that's the reason why there's Mayball. Yeah. So in in, Hoya, in, Hoya a line, that, in a line Hoya of say that directly all the time. Like Hoya says that all the time. Is like Killing Time is literally my favorite band. Like you know, I sent him a copy of friggin' the colored vinyl, and he was happy as fuck. Right? You know, he posted on Instagram. Well, that's and he's like, you know, he he's unabashed about that, and so is Isaac. Danny's unabashed about Killing Time being his favorite band too. And I remember those guys hanging out at Anthony's house when they were little kids, when Hoy was just Dave, you know, sick of it all's roadies, younger brother. Like I know those guys for fucking ever. Like they were always part of the mix always. And you know, I will always be their friend because they're fucking they're like, they've always been fucking cool as shit to me. Well, it's like, this is a uh, raw deal inspires Madball. Madball inspires no warning, no warning inspire. And it's like, it's still the foundation record. And I yeah. think that's, that's why it's such a strong thing. And uh, it's a little sad to say this, but it was actually awesome in some way that Bob got killing time to play down at FYA. Cause I wouldn't have said, I wouldn't have seen rich for the last time, but I, it's a weird time. It's gotta be a weird time for you to now get into seeing some of your friends pass away and yet see hardcore being celebrated at such a wide, I mean, dude, some of these bands are getting celebrated now for 30 years that you, you watch come up. It's gotta be so crazy for you guys to see 18 year old kids come and say like, breakdown's my favorite band oh. or killing times. My favorite 30 something. It's gotta be nuts for you. Oh, it is. I mean, like with outburst, right. As, as a, as an example, besides killing time, like the fact that we did this tribute comp, right. That has crime watch and it had power trip, like, Power Trip being like a band that is like on the verge of like incredible success in the metal space, being 
Riley being a genuinely friggin' lovely, lovely fucking human being. And the fact that like these younger people like are so influenced by outbursts that they covered it on like House of Strombo, which is this giant Canadian TV show. Like they played it all the time in their sets. Like to think that this music lives on. And that's really the legacy of my friends who've passed on too, is like their music, you know, in a certain sense has you live forever in a lot of ways. And as long as people are playing your music, there's a piece of you still that's out there. And it's the only solace that I can have because I'm not particularly spiritual. Um, yeah, I mean, like, it's fantastic to see that people are getting into killing time, that there's reverence for this, that, you know, people are fucking replicating the outburst layout in like, on like things, something that I did as a terrible fucking new wave design fucking 30 years ago on my, you know, like, like people still replicate that outburst cover. Like it's a thrill and it means that we did change culture. You know, it may not be, you know, changing culture in a huge way. You know, nobody here is like Elon Musk fucking creating an electric vehicle. But, you know, where we changed people's hearts and minds and it's going to live on in generation now, generation after generation. It's fucking awesome. And my friends will never be forgotten. Well, I feel like there's something special about those records. And I think that, I don't think I should say that those records would have had the same kind of home on a label. So it's like that perfect symphony of you being there with Jim to be able to put these records out by these bands that you guys know. And I, I, I just, in the last 25 years, I've just watched bands like Outburst, which you can just get the seven inch here and there. Like that became like, a holy item, like holy fucking you, fuck, like in Dungeon Dragons, like holy fuck, you know, an outburst record. And then, you know, there was this small time where, and we were talking about the three and four years. Every three and four years, new kids come in and they discover these bands. Like, oh, this is the craziest shit. And I'm like, it gets me so excited. Be it breakdown, be it killing time, yeah. um, sheer terror. Obviously, uh, yeah. I I did their their the their first show back in 2010. It was like the one of the funniest things to call Paul. He's like, ah, yeah, okay. Uh, okay. We'll do it. And I was like, and it was all because I was talking to, um, homeboy from, uh, kill your idols. He's like, you know, sure. Terror is practicing to go to Japan. I'm like, but they're broken up. He's like, well, they got an offer to Japan. They can't turn down. And I'm like, Gary, give me Paul's number, please. And that was it. I called him. He's like, fuck it. We'll do it. Okay. And it's like, for me, to see all this stuff that you built. Like this is your, we just had an episode. We talked about platform. Like you created this platform to amplify all these bands. And I, I'd want you to understand that even though you went through all that, there's no end to what you did for the world by being the guy that's like, fuck it. I'll put out, uh, you know, just can't hate it up. Uh, you know, like I don't, I, I don't know another person that would see the value because of the way that Harker was shaping where I don't know if, another person would just do it. And I, I love that you told this story this way. I have a couple questions and we'll get you out of here. I know we've been talking a long time. I just appreciate your honesty and I really do appreciate your investment oh, in no. the purity of it and not for the money. This is so great. I'm happy for, you know, you giving me so much time, you know? No, I, I, this is, this has been multiple, usually once or twice I get this moment of like, Holy fuck. This has went a whole level deeper, but there's so many revelations in this in your personal life and the and the things that you put into it that I have to ask 
knowing that you went through therapy, knowing that you are now in a successful scenario, how do you, do you, do you still get random regrets? Do you still get moments when you look back at things that didn't go right and you get upset or have you buried all your regrets and you just move forward? Oh, my, my, my wife, you know, there's very few people that notice my tells, right? And there are times yeah. when I'm driving on a road trip with my wife and she'll see my fucking jaw start to go. And she knows and she'll say, what's up, Twitchy? And I'm Uh-oh. like, because she knows I'm having an argument in my head. And it's either something that I think I'm going to have or an argument that I've had previously. Right? And she knows how to take me down because she brings me back to earth. And I have that voice in my head. Sometimes it brings me back to earth. But yeah, there are times when in my head, again, like I go back to the moments I zigged when I should have zagged. But I also have to have the realization that like, you know, like overall, I believe that wherever I was brought me to where I am. So I'm good. Um, and I can't count other people's money. I can't count other people's success. You know, there are other people that have sold their label for countless millions of dollars, but they have no friends. And I would much, I wouldn't trade you know, being able to fucking buy a yacht or fucking a house in the fucking Caymans or whatever the fuck, you know, for for having people that I've known and trust me and I trust them for this long period of time. Like, there's no amount of money that you can place on that experience. So, yeah, I get pissed off periodically and occasionally, fucking, you know, in negotiations or how I act in business situations now, those old ghosts reappear because I'm a human. But it's different. And I just try to live my life in a state of gratitude. Now you still own all the digital rights to everything. Like you didn't you didn't sell your stuff to a catalog, correct? Nope. I it's 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 pretty that, much it's it's all me right now. That's awesome. Yeah. It's one of the saddest things to see that it to see that these hardcore record labels, the older ones, are starting to get sucked up by bigger and bigger things like Sony. So I was wondering if that was something that you still held out on and you have all the rights to that. Yeah, I still have all the rights. I mean, there's things that I probably will never, you know, like all the stuff that I put out to date, the catalog, again, it's 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 emotional for me. It's not about money and assets and an asset purchase, right? I'm not selling something to a venture capital group for $300 million, right? That's not what I'm doing. I run a fucking hardcore label because it's my friends. And, you know, uh, you know, that's what I do. You know, what I do with the name in the future, I would consider friggin', you know, somebody putting out new records under the name. Would it be me? I don't know. I'm not, close enough to a lot of the younger bands to like make a valid, valid decision. Like I know what I like, but it's such a different world now that like, I don't know if I even understand how hardcore works anymore. Some ways it's so much similar, but the internet has sped up every single thing and everything that you just talked about in this entire conversation would not be fucking possible now because there's no longer those weird small nights where you're out till two in the morning after the show hanging out. Why? Because you have social media. You go home, you run to your phone. And those deep conversations that come or 
just that you're meeting up on a Friday night to hang out or a Friday to hang out your friends at a record. That would never happen because your computer and your phone, you'd be sitting in your house. There's such a emotional detachment from human beings, even in hardcore. And, and there are segues and conversations where they talk about all this stuff like, oh, it still matters. But I'm telling you, the change is 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 insane in the level that people can communicate. Things move so fast. Every Friday is now like a three or four new brand new records that come out. It moves so fast and it shifts so often. And as you see with the way that streaming services are by far the new the new mad splatter. There's no more analog touching those records. And we talk about this a lot on the show, but it's such a hard way to gauge. But And I'm going to go back to it. Because of people like you and your friends, you guys have created these things that can outlast all that. And five years from now, whatever the new fasting these kids, they're going to be picking up breakdown. They're going to be picking up killing time. They're going to be loving the outburst. And that's what's fucked up about it. It's like, you know, I'm a young old person in hardcore. I booked my first show next year. It'll be 25 years. I've seen the different wave of kids come now and they come in and they find the record and they go, Oh my God, this is my shit. And they move on or they stay with it. And it's the same couple records that the new people always find. But as for, as a label, I don't, I don't have any idea how a label works in this field because there's so many small labels and so much about streaming and so much about, you know, like the distribution system works totally different. You know, I, as an independent, I think most of the time, most people just sell to rev, you know, there's no longer those relationship buildings. You contact one person via email. There's right. no one even wants to pick up a telephone. If there's a problem, it's so, so much uh, drastically different. You know, like if I was working for cord magazine right now, I wouldn't get heckled by Jimmy Murphy's law for asking some dumb question that met needs in a magazine. You know, like there's there's no longer any of these things. And so there's a lack of human element at times. But in a other weird way, there's like a band from Staten Island called Combust. And they are every bit sounding like a band that basically took the bright side and just try to add a little to it. And it's so crazy to think like in this day and age, there's these kids that are still touched by stuff that came. It's It's, it's both wonderful and kind of, weird man and so i hope that you do get to do something and i'm I'm really excited about the idea of you triumphing and that you have a legit like place in music that is so fucking crazy i mean yeah. i've had some people say i've had some people really tell me that losing their label or getting fucked over like when lumberjack distribution fell apart that you know they almost like gave away they almost gave away completely like just being a part of hardcore. So the fact that you're able to, I mean, the I, number one for those listening, we did this awesome benefit for Howie, who was in alone in the crowd. And, you know, Carl Picaro, your brother called me up and was like, Hey, do you want to do a, a benefit show? And I, I always love doing benefit shows. Cause it's the one time when bands don't bicker and argue about how much money or when do they have to play? They just want to be a part of it. It's for how never in my life did I, right. It was for Howie. And, and it literally was like, like Terror was like, wait, Scott Vogel, I was booking Terror that day. Actually, they were playing a show that day. I said, Scott, I'm going to tell you something, but you can't tell anybody. He said, what? I said, Alone in the Crowd's doing a benefit. And he goes, tell them that we are playing a show. <laughs> <I'm> playing <laughs> the show. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. was like, he's like, he's like, and he goes, he goes, tell them I have, he literally pulls his arm up. He goes, tell them I have Alone in the Crowd tattoo and tell them that we're playing the show. <laughs> That's fucking cool shit. 
yeah, he, but it was cool as shit. You came down for it. Like yeah. you could have been like, I'm done with hardcore, but you were there in person. Oh, I mean, and that's such. Carl's playing. Lars is playing. Fucking like, I haven't seen Jules in like 15 years. Like, Jeff came out. Fucking, you know, Steve Murphy from from Uppercut. Fucking came out. Like, like, you know, Howie is sick. Howie, you know, like I was at all the Alone in the Crowd practices too. Like, I probably saw that band play live. I saw that. I've seen that band literally play live about four dozen times. Terribly for probably like the first bunch of times, actually, but like it turned out great, you know. And like you know, I remember having snowball fights outside this practice space, and me wearing a mock turtleneck for some strange reason. But like, <laughs> those are like those are like the memories that I carry with me. So like, of course. And then like, you know, I've never seen Terror before, honestly. Like it was just like like a lot of the I, I say new bands, which is hilarious because they're not a new band, but a lot of like. N- future generation bands i just kind of like slept on a little bit and like terror is actually really really good and i've never got a chance to talk to talk to scott right but i think they're fucking super cool right and you know like you know so it was great you know to meet you in person because we never had before for those few minutes you know and you know it was just a fun it was just a fun show to to be at so yeah i mean the hardcore community does come together for good things sometimes <laughs> no it's like really i always love i really do love seeing people in the flesh when they're there for the right shows and it, it's it's it, it goes back to the connection you have with people that will override any of the bad things so is there anything you want to leave us with any like information or the 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 bill wilson's how to not do something? Do you have any like imparting oh, wisdom? That's, like, that's a very long list. I could enumerate it and probably <laughs> put. I could probably post a Google sheet of all the zigs when I should have zagged. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, you know, the only you know ultimate lesson is that you know, and and it's like, you know, Drago says says this at the at the end of like a conversation that we had, but like all the fun times all the great times of my adolescence, all of the travel that I've done, all of the things that I've done that I I will carry into my old age are because of this group of people. So like cherishing your actual friendships is really fucking important. And like, like, yes, I zigged when I should have zagged and I lived on fucking futons like an idiot for a while. And like, you know, I did all this stuff, but number one, it was my choice. I could have escaped any time I really wanted to. And Number two is I wouldn't fucking trade it for nothing. I would do it all over again. So if you love what you do, it doesn't fucking matter. Just, you know, my only advice is try to pay your rent. Because that was the biggest stupid thing that I ever did. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know if it's just the drive to want to see something succeed at all costs. Or maybe it's also a little bit of stubborn being peppered into it, but what you persevered through and where you're at now is absolutely an amazing story. And again, for everyone listening, this is another guy who taught himself and learned in and out through everything. And, you know, like when you said local area network, that's like a land for people who don't, who didn't pick that up. Like the fact that you're involved in building this shit in the beginning at at these places is absolutely incredible. So uh, what you, what you said is, and I want people to know, you're working on the Blackout Podcast. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, first, first season. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's six episodes. I'm talking to basically the, you know, the core bands like right now in the can, you know, I spoke to Carl and Drago from killing time, you know, about what they did. And it's only, it's only like an hour. Cause I, I actually like, I just, you know, like I, I wasn't sure I would have the appetite to do anything consistent, honestly, because of just all the shit that I'm involved with. So I wanted to keep things just short and sweet. Um, and, uh, so I have Killing Time, I have Uppercut, I have Outburst already in the can. Um, I did Sean, I talked to Sean Taggart, who's a friend of mine and a friend of the label, and give him, you know, a little bit because he's kind of like part of the Blackout community because he's my boy. And, you know, I'm looking forward to doing, you know, I did the Goops um, because they were literally the most fun band that I've ever toured with. I mean, my boys are my boys, but those guys were fucking off the hook. Um with just like the pure rock and roll attitude. It was great. Like, um, and then, you know, I'm going to figure out who else I'm going to talk to probably, you know, I'll probably talk to Eric from redemption. I'll probably talk to Tim Shaw because he worked for me for so many years and he's going to be hilarious. Um, I'll probably talk to some other, some other people, but yeah, like short and sweet things from like the community and family that I built over the years, just for the fun of it. And, you know, a little introspection, a little bit of, you know, dirty road stories and, you know, hopefully some insight that people can get some value from. I mean, there's so much insight just in this. I can only imagine when you sit down with your old friends and you kind of go over things. It's going to be great. Also, Carl mentioned on the on his podcast, uh, the Method still has a couple copies out and eventually you guys are going to be, they're going to be playing live. Um, so I'll link up with your, whatever you'll, you'll send me, whatever your latest, uh, coloring and offering. And we'll have that live on the show notes. So you can check that out. Bill, I, I know it sounds dumb, but like, it's awesome to talk to you and hear this. I mean, like, it's a silly thing for those that we talked about this before, but like when it's like when a record label was mailing shit to your house, you don't, you don't take it like, holy fuck. But now I get emails and I don't even want to see them. But I probably still in one of my flyer boxes have the Redemption eighty seven, the Method, the H two O, and the Powerhouse postcards. Oh my god, that's hilarious! Like, if you actually find them, can you scan them? Because I'm so bad at keeping shit that like I barely remember how many colored vinyl records I put out. Like I just don't. I never count my own shit. Like I have copies for me, and then like, yeah, Joey, did we? How many we do we do those? And Joey kind of knows more about the pressings than I do. Like I'm not a collector of my own shit. Like. If you own the master recordings and you can do like, a, if you, I wanted to press a solid gold fucking version of the Killing Time Method EP, I could. So what's the fucking point <laughs> in me fucking like doing any of that shit? So it's kind of like, I'm just content with participating and having fun. And like I said before, making the donuts. Well, thank you for making the donuts because the ones you made have truly changed hardcore punk, which always changes the world. Thank you for your insight and for your bare like to the bone, pure honesty. And thank you for struggling through and teaching us a lesson about how to get through the hardest times and dealing with owning up to mistakes and learning from it. It's absolutely fucking incredible, man. Like so much more than I thought this story was going to be. And your, your impact on hardcore me personally, uh, I don't think you'll ever understand. And just thank you for this time. Cool. It means a lot to me. And, you know, um, you know, I look forward to hanging out in person. 
next time I get to Philly. Definitely. All right, brother. Take care, man. Cool. Well, I'm still reeling from it. Listen to this two or three times on my own. Just with excitement, and I really hope you enjoyed it. Once again, shout-outs to Bill, and much love to Carl Picaro, who is Bill's brother, right-hand man, childhood friend. Working on getting Carl back in for part two. I know you guys asked when he's coming on. Working on a rule of three. Said it. Our lines got tangled. I got busy with work. G has family stuff. Richie's out there killing it with all the different projects he's gotten going on, but the rule's coming. And again, thank you for the support. Thank you to Ikulu for letting us play that song. Thank you for Bill for the story. Thank you for listening. We got more coming. I'll talk to you next week. Peace.